Network. So for all things media and more, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show we take Professor a look at- Xavier is a jerk! Yes, he is. Yes, he is. We don't even need that dumb intro. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, you mean old bald man. Hey everyone, this is Dante, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Inferno Magic. That's magic with a K, and Professor Xavier is a big old jerk. So we have been having the most amazing time doing the Holiday Jam program here on X's for Podcast. And when I was going through in my head all of the most classic holiday issues of all time, 168 might not occur to everybody as the most Christmassy issue of all time exactly, but this issue is responsible for Professor Xavier is a Jerk. This issue is responsible for that incredibly well-staged Nightcrawler with the Banff in front of his junk. This issue is responsible for Lockheed. And I could not be happier to talk about it with anybody, Dante, than you. Because genuinely, one of the things that steals the show this issue is Cyclops. So I'm I'm here for all of your holiday feels, bro. Hit me. And there are a lot of them to be had. I will say, you know, when you mentioned this issue initially, I was like, is that really a holiday issue? But like, oh, you know what? There's snow on the ground. Like, I'm, I'm into it. It was a really fun issue to revisit because I haven't, I can't even tell you the last time I would have read this. One of the things that it brought back for me is that this, you know, I picked this issue up at a time when I was new to comics and I was just trying to get my hands on whatever X-Men comics I could. And this is just one of those random, wonderful finds that I had in the wild. And I hadn't read anything around it. So any of the issues or story leading up to this, I had no clue. It wasn't my very first issue, but it was kind of like a somewhat of an introductory issue because it was like, I, you just kind of had to fill in the pieces yourself based off of everything they gave you in this issue. So for me, this kind of like laid a lot of groundwork for several of these characters i mean kitty pride definitely like who i thought she was and really who she is as a character to me a lot of that comes from this issue specifically and you know i'm so i I get so romanticized when i hear my friends talk about their introduction not just to comics but to x-men in general and you know i don't think that you could have a better starting point than vaguely claremont paul smith on pencils bob y check on inks Tom Orzakowski on letters and Glennis Ween on coloring. What a weird time this was in history where letterers came above colorists. What a weird time in crediting history. But, you know, I love that you're saying that that's who these characters were for you because I guess for you then, Kitty was always kind of feisty and Ileana was never problematically a child. Yeah, I mean... So Kitty was not really around. I mean, I think she was off with Excalibur at that point. I wasn't reading Excalibur. I didn't know what Excalibur was when I was getting into the X-Men. Nightcrawler wasn't around. Some of my references for some of these characters were the arcade game that you would go and play. And I was like, where the hell's Dazzler? Like, I love playing as Dazzler. Um, <laughs> like, again, it was like, it's very much like you're piecing together the idea of who these characters are. And it's like, some of the people are in this issue, but not, you know, and what's current and and going back like 
like rereading this uh, this week was super delightful for that reason. It, it brought back a lot of those memories, and it's fun to just really, really consider like where the characters are now compared to where they were back then too. For Kitty, that means a whole lot of growth. Other characters like Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler kind of still feels the same, like kind of just held true to who he is. But then you also have like Storm has some great quiet moments in this that are very like introspective. For me, you sent me down a rabbit hole of emotions and reading desire because now I'm like, okay, am I going to just start reading this whole era again? So thanks for that. You you pretty much set up what my Christmas is going to look like now. Well, and I'm really proud of that. And, you know, I'm so glad you brought up Nightcrawler and Christmas because something that really struck me about this issue that I'd love to know your opinion on is I don't love sexless Nightcrawler. It's not my thing. He should be flirty. He should be playful. I understand that who he's come to be is frequently associated with religion. But here's an example of a vaguely holiday issue where Nightcrawler isn't super defined by putting the Christ in Christmas. And I think it's really interesting that it's defined by his playfully sexual relationship with his sister. But, you know, we can't win them all. So my question for you is, how does this fit with your version of Nightcrawler? I mean, this is a Christmas issue where Nightcrawler doesn't go to church. This is what I think of with Nightcrawler. I think of like the, the fun, playful, kind of like sexy elf. The placement of the Banff doll that Amanda has in her apartment is like right in front of his crotch. And it's like miniature Nightcrawler in front of maybe miniature, maybe mid-sized Nightcrawler. We don't really know. He's sprawled out on the couch. It's, he's in his, his uniform, so it's not as provocative as it could have been. But I mean, I just always thought like, okay, like he can get it. Like he's just, he's this suave, sexy, like fun dude. And I mean, to me, this is this is Nightcrawler. This is like everything with uh, religion that's been done with him, like always doesn't feel quite as central to who he is compared to the, the more fun, relaxed side for me again because of how I was introduced to the character what I knew about him initially and I wasn't and I wasn't getting to read a lot of him right I was like piecing together like whatever random stories I could get my hands on at the time uh, until much later when it was like you would get more uh, cohesive stories right when I was reading whatever was current so this issue it's driving me crazy with excitement like I was so obsessed and I always wanted to have that Banff doll and I like ever since that panel I have wanted that Banff doll and like just for years and so anytime like the bamps have been a thing or they come back into the stories later on or what when you read kitty's fairy tale and the bamps are there it's like it's just oh i love it so much and i really appreciate in this in this moment too in this the scene i feel like the placement of the the christmas package that's there like this nicely wrapped package with a bow kind of like with the combination of nightcrawler and the placement of the bamp like kind of makes you feel like he's the present or like his sex is about to be a present something about the whole scene it just like works really well together to kind of like subtly tell you like hey here's a sexy present and you know i really wonder if that's also paul smith draws everything like an underwear model i agree with you there's something about the presentation i think if it was nightcrawler naked it would have been too salacious but you know i also think it's interesting that you read this when you were a kid right yeah absolutely i mean 
mean, I couldn't have been more than 12-ish, somewhere around there. Okay, same here, same here, roughly around the same age. So did all of the sexuality of this go right over your head as a kid too? Because like Cyclops is having some very moment by the Ruby Quartz Lagoon kind of times. And I don't think I ever realized how much this issue was about everybody be banging. Yeah, I would say everything besides Nightcrawler, like it wasn't quite as overt to me. Like, you know, any anybody else's relationships, I didn't quite get it. I didn't really understand. But that Nightcrawler pose, like to me, I think that pretty much just says like, well, hello there. And even if I didn't very distinctly recognize that as a very sexual thing, I feel like subconsciously there is a part of my brain that made some kind of connection with that scene. I mean, again, it's like the placement of the doll, like right at his crotch, <laughs> the pose, something something about that specifically. It's like, oh, you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, gosh, was that Burt Reynolds centerfold is that same pose. So like, I feel like that pose is already <laughs> at least in I, I don't know time-wise, like, if it makes sense, but that pose to me is just, like, it, it screams sex, sexy. And, you know, thinking of things that are really great mirrors that scream something, like, really seriously, I can't get over the last page reveal of Madeline Pryor. First of all, fucking Scott getting it with Lee and then getting it with Madeline this issue. Boy's a stud. Right? And everybody's consenting. No one's getting used. It's really cool. And I never as a child could have realized the cleverness of Chris Claremont. But the first thing Madeline Pryor motherfucking says is, Welcome to Alaska. My name's Madeline Pryor. She might as well say, Welcome to the X-Men. I hope you survived the experience. And for the panel she's introduced to feature Scott and Alex, and for everything going on with her right now with Alex... I don't want to say like Alex's narrative has much as has as much to do with Madeline as Scott's, but Madeline certainly has a claim on Alex in a deeper way than I think I'd ever considered before rereading this issue. And I don't know that I would have if I didn't know I was doing this with you. I don't know that I would have read it for Cyclops as hard. Yeah, definitely a level of excitement for me getting to see these scenes with Cyclops as a huge fan. But yeah, it was just like, shit, this is a banger of an issue for him. Like one, you kind of have this great moment or a couple great moments with with Lee, who was such an amazing character, like so happy to see Madeline Pryor, Lee Forrester and Stevie Hunter in this issue. Like such great characters, right? Stevie Hunter had a huge impact on me. I thought everybody should have a powerful woman of color be their dance teacher i just thought that was necessary for everyone after this right yeah i mean i definitely missed out on a key part of life because i didn't have that but yeah the moments with lee this is coming off of maybe knowing the 90s cartoon maybe knowing more of you know what was current at the time and like just picking up whatever i could and it's like where's gene what's why is he with this other woman who's well a blonde and not a red (laughs) that's you know one he broke away from the mold at least once twice i guess i guess maybe it's a pattern actually redhead blonde redhead blonde anyway he was getting closure with lee like whatever whatever story they had whatever adventure whatever time they had together he was trying to be you know a a good guy and like be open honest and not not lead her on and and apologize for whatever it is that you know he may have done to her and then we end the issue with here's to the rest of your life going to hell you know because the this woman, rightfully so, is going to be angry at you later on. She's going to be angry at you forever and not particularly forgiving, which, you yeah. know, every right not to be. 
Yeah. But it is so fascinating how much this issue ultimately had an impact on the X-Men as a whole, you know, and it's a holiday issue for all the things this is known for. I don't think the holiday part is much. Yeah, I mean, definitely the I, I really the two things that make it say holiday, the fact that there's snow on the ground. So the time of year and that one scene with Nightcrawler where there is a, a wrapped present, nothing else really overtly says holiday. But I mean, just like you're saying, there there are so many amazing moments in this and, and key parts of different characters history in this one issue. This is a very impactful issue. I feel like I could be talking about this issue forever and ever. One thing I really wanted to talk about with this issue and again coming from it as like grabbing whatever I could read that was uncanny x-men and I think this is an important aspect of storytelling because you never know what is going to be someone's first issue so not knowing what led up to this issue and reading it and there are these great little moments that are teased early on that's the scene of Kitty and Ileana talking and someone or something is watching from the window and you don't know what it is and and of course, now I'm like, oh, oh my God, this is so cute. I love it. But it's so sinister. And and when I was a kid, I was like, what is this? And like, you just get this close up of this like creepy looking eye and maybe like bangs or something. And later it's revealed that it's Lockheed. And, you know, Lockheed was introduced like uh, several issues earlier and then like disappeared and Kitty didn't know what happened. And then they're reunited in this issue and they're so happy. But I really, the setup was such a wonderful thing. What I really enjoyed about that uh, and again, because I thought this, that this is why it's so important to treat every issue from a, a creative standpoint. It could be somebody's first issue, an introduction. And that little payoff, like that was super delightful because if somebody picked this up for the first time now or decades ago, just having like those little moments and providing enough for your audience to understand what's going on, picking up clues and things, but then like creating, creating little surprise moments that may have been a reference to something and maybe is not as big of a surprise, you know, if you've known the, the stories for years and years, but something about that was just kind of a nice little treat. And I would say that was a, a nice Christmas present on the reread. Because I think one of the things that this book gives, and it gives in such large amounts is nuanced character development and so many writers came back to this era for so many years that every one of these moments has had a follow-up and 10 return twos and 15 flashbacks to and i feel like the more you read it and the more you connect it to the other bits of canon that it's sort of surrounded by the more powerful it becomes as as you continue it's a really fascinating thing where comics as a medium, because they just keep running, they continue to evolve and give in a way few things outside of Susan Lucci's eternal Erica Kane ever could. You're super delightful. You know, I just threw in all my children reference out there because it's Christmas <laughs> and we all deserve it. You know, we yeah. all have our copies of Soap Opera Digest with Rena Sofer on them, you know? <laughs> Hey, what's going on, X's for Podcast Nation? This is Mike the Borg9. I am here to talk about X-Men issue number 230. So the issue starts out, the X-Men are at their new base of operations, and it looks like they're going through a training scenario. So it's a uh, kind of, all the X-Men just kind of gang up on Rogue, and Rogue does a decent job of holding her own, but then get her B, and then Wolverine has his claws, and he says, you know, I would have got you. 
but that's okay. So then Madeline Pryor was the one conducting all of the training exercises. So I thought that was pretty cool. The one thing that stands out to me is this classic like late 70s, 80s art. And I really love it personally. I think the attention to detail on the buildings and the characters really makes every scene pop as well as all the colors. Continuing on with the issue, long shot. So this is the first issue I've ever read with long shot. Uh, I do collect comics and I do have an issue of long shot number three, first appearance of Mojo. So it's really nice to see Longshot here doing something. So Longshot is exploring these underground caverns, and which looks like an old abandoned mine that the Reavers seem to have stored their treasure. But when he looks into it, it looks like there's a bunch of ghosts that are kind of lonely, they don't belong there, and they're asking him for his help. So when he touches the, the jewelry or the treasures, he gets kind of visions of who the jewelry belongs to. He reports back to the X-Men, and uh, it's kind of funny because some of the X-Men are like, oh, maybe we should keep it. But it turns out they're going to do the right thing and try to use uh, Psylocke's powers combined with uh, somebody named Gateway to to return all of the lost jewelry to their rightful owners since the Reavers are the ones that stole it. Again, the artwork is great, and it just shows like the large pile of jewelry that's just kind of sitting there. So I think that's really cool. The X-Men do manage to bring back all of the treasures to their rightful owners. They manage to do it all in one night. They travel the world in one night, dropping off the jewelry in people's homes while they sleep. There's a, a nice scene with Dazzler and some kids, and Dazzler says that she's one of Santa's helpers. And it turns out that the night that they were doing this was Christmas Eve. So the next morning was Christmas for many people who celebrate it around the world. So everybody did the right thing and it felt good. Dazzler did get a bike that she was eyeing up from Wolverine, so that was cool. And then Rogue gives a flute to Gateway and Gateway plays music for her and they kind of just hang out. So Rogue made a friendship with Gateway throughout the issue, but it turned out it was Christmas. So it's a nice Christmas story that written by the X-Men. It's a good one shot. And I think if you're interested in some kind of holiday comics, definitely check it out. You can check me out on YouTube at MikeTheBorg9 and MikeTheBorg9 Reviews, where I talk about all things gaming, geek-related, pop culture, card games mostly, video games, and then my reviews channels where I review various products from health and beauty to food. Please give that a check out. Please give me a like and subscribe, and I really appreciate it, and have a happy holidays and happy new year. This is Tori Sheehan back again with the issue Merry Christmas Daredevil, the April 1988 offering from writer Ann Nascenti, penciler John Romita Jr., inker Al Williamson, Joe Rosen on letters, Max Scheel on colors, Ralph Macchio as the editor, and Tom DeFalco as editor-in-chief. Folks, it's the 80s. And Matt Murdock is in the middle of trying to pull his ass out of getting wrecked by the kingpin. One of the great things about this issue is that it is classic 1980s Nascenti Daredevil. And the John Romita art is beautiful. This cover of kingpin just like shaking the empty mask of Daredevil with the lighting coming from underneath looking all evil and big. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. One of the other things about this issue is that it has a lot to do with the Wild Boys, which... You know, coming from a 2021 perspective, 1988's Wild Boys are a lot 
but they do what they came here to do, which is to provide a very surface level, uh, street level, quote unquote, villain for Daredevil to kind of punch up a little bit where you never feel like Daredevil's in actual trouble. It's more like a, oh gosh, Daredevil's got to get involved again. The cops have families they want to see on Christmas. Let's go get them, boys. To me, the far more interesting part of the Wild Boys villainy, quote-unquote, is the fact that young 8-Ball is interested in being just as cool as those kids. I personally have always liked the kind of Baker Street Boys group of kids that uh, Daredevil has picked up in Hell's Kitchen. I think they're adorable. Darla is obviously a fave. Oh my gosh, have you met me? I think what's really great about this is that we get sort of hints of different classic Christmas ideas and stories without actually doing a beat-for-beat reproduction of them. The We'll get there eventually, but Kingpin's monologue at the end is very Grinch on top looking down on Whoville. You know, he gets to have a lot of Christmas, don't talk to me about Christmas, Bob Cratchit kind of conversation with his lackeys. There's a lot of, you can't take the heart out of Christmas. You know, we all get to have Christmas even though we have nothing. We're building things out of everything. The community is coming together in the spirit of Christmas. Christmas Day brings about uh, a change in people's perceptions. It's all very much those classic ideas of what Christmas means, especially in New York City, which is a place roast, but everyone still kind of was brought together. Once we get through the wild boys kicking around and doing the first of their several, uh, you know, I'm going to keep using words like villainy and heist, but honestly, these guys are just a bunch of, like, gross dudes on the sidewalk. After they punch out a dude, Daredevil gets to come in and decide he's going to go after them. Eight Ball continues to say how cool it is, and he starts to get that weird feeling that maybe Daredevil doesn't think he's cool for thinking the Wild Boys are cool. And then we get to go to the really fun part, which is Daredevil changes back into Matt Murdock and hauls a tree into his hotline. If you don't remember, in the 80s, post-Typhoid Mary, Matt breakdown, Karen being found as a junkie, kind of nonsense that was going on. Woo, it was a different time. Matt Murdock loses his license, loses his identity, loses everything that makes him who he is because of Kingpin. And he sets up this hotline to help people, particularly people who are on heroin, people who need legal advice. While he cannot be used as a lawyer, he can certainly provide advice uh, for people who need help doing things like fighting back against Kelco for poisoning the water or fighting back against shitty landlords in your tenements. So these are all things that he provides, and he has built himself kind of a community of people down on their luck who are just so grateful to have someone to be behind. For a long time, Matt Murdock has felt the love-hate relationship the community has with Daredevil, where they're willing to turn on him on a dime, but when they need him, they're so happy he's there. And now he gets kind of this unfiltered love and appreciation from his community, and to a certain extent from Karen. You know, this is them rebuilding back their relationship. You know, she ain't there yet, but he's still into it. And honestly, Karen at the hotline is one of the best examples of Karen being an actual, like, 
decent character that you're going to get for like the first time in these issues. To be honest, Karen kind of got screwed over in the 60s and 70s and the 80s is where she really like gets to be a human until, you know, things happen. Uh, No spoilers, spoilers. After he shows up with the tree and everyone's like, we're just so happy to see you. We also get to delve more into Kingpin and what's up his butt today and what fly is kind of bothering him like some kind of metaphor for like the devil whispering in his ear providing him this kind of madness that creeps through his whole persona during this issue I like to call it Kingpin's doing his very best at Jan Brady impersonation in this just constantly being like Murdoch 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 while he's working out with those giant giant dumbbells and fighting a fly and telling people don't talk to me about Christmas just get it done I want to he's like sometimes I think you know and I'm not going to get political about it but y'all know what I'm talking about when you hear about a New York real estate guy who wants to build a tower taller than everybody you know what's up we have like Kingpin at his most like scene chewing ridiculousness which is pretty classic for a Christmas special and Christmas specials you know everything's kind of surface layer you don't want to have to think about it too much you just kind of want to pop in get a bad guy a slightly lesser bad guy that we get to punch on and a good guy good feelings good just good all around we want to feel good it's Christmas it's Christmas you know so this is like I personally think that this kingpin stuff is of course very hammy very scene chewy very like I can't wait till Vincent Donofrio gets to do this kind of monologue but like at the same time it is a beautiful representation of who kingpin is he is someone who does very broad strokes he's a very he's very much a take a hammer to any kind of problem that he sees he's not a subtle man and a fly fly flying around him unable to be destroyed by giant dumbbells is very much what Matt Murdock is representing to him right now. So like kudos to Anna Senti and John Romita Jr. for putting this together. It is a stunning look into Kingpin in an issue that is pretty much otherwise pretty fluffy, unlike Mr. Kingpin, who is just all muscle. Then we get more of the Wild Boys being saying words that tells you that people think they know what people on the street talk like, but so it goes. We get some lovely, like, scenes of Daredevil just kind of, (laughs) like, basically, like, running circles around these guys. You never feel like Daredevil's going to take a hit. You just always feel like he's just here to, like, be like... I'm taking away your gun. I'm taking away your knife. I'm kicking you in the nuts and now we're cuffing you. Like, it's not a real crazy fight, but it is definitely enough for Daredevil to be like, I get to be dramatic because, you know, it's Christmas and you don't get to go around smashing windows and stealing stuff while you're you know, doing this on December 24th, 25th, 23rd, whatever. Meanwhile, what this really does is it allows for 8-Ball to learn the wonderful the wonderful lesson that you, you, get, you get out of the world what you put into the world. And if you're going to be someone who steals from someone, you're going to get stolen back from. And I think this is a really lovely lesson for 8-Ball to learn out of all of these little, like, Hell's Kitchen kids. He's definitely the one that flirts closest to being a bit of an anti-hero, someone who's easily influenced, easily could go down the wrong path. 
And I think that this is a lovely turning moment for him to realize that, like, you have to be a good person who takes care of those around you. And if you notice that someone is down on their luck, to give to them what you can, what you have to give is a really beautiful moment. Unlike the previous Daredevil issue that I worked with you on, which had a much more kind of new idea of Christmas to it, a new idea of what it means to come together, this one plays upon the idea of you know, that Scrooge sentimentality, that Grinch sentimentality that we all sort of have. And I think that they do it very nicely here without actually like stepping in the same exact footprints that those stories have come from before. Again, the moment between Darla and Eight Ball is adorable, if to me a little weird because like they read as eight, but they're sort of like starting to pretend like they're 12. I don't know. I never know how old these kids are, but it always just seems a little odd when they play up Darla and Eight Ball. So... That's on me, but I do think it's very sweet how he leaves her his skateboard and she's just so, oh, she's so happy about it. So, and then we get more of Kingpin being pissed off about all of this nonsense and the Christmas and the people changing their minds and he doesn't get what he wants because he's just a big evil bad guy. Like I said last time, we now get, now that we're into the, into Matt Murdock coming back to the, to the hotline party, seeing Matt being carefree and happy and laughing and giving out gifts. I love Matt Murdock when he is carefree like that. And I just think this is a really sweet moment that he gets to have because the 80s are full of a lot of down moments for Matt Murdock, and this is a really nice little bright moment that he gets to have in the middle of it all, and I'm just so happy that he gets to have that. Of course, we end with a lovely little snow thing happening in New York City. So, so great to see snow coming down and making the city feel cleansed again, covering up the sadness and giving you the brightness of a of a new fresh snow pile is just lovely. And again, this monologue of Kingpins at the end is just the imagery on the final page as we, you know, move in closer to him. He just, he fills more and more of the page and you feel more and more the sin Minister, the the foreboding, the foreshadowing, the creep that is the lurk of Kingpin. And I think it's just stunning, beautiful work to sneak in underneath all of this fluff. I really enjoy it. You know, this is Daredevil number 253. Again, I'm Tori Sheehan. You can find me online at Tori underscore Sheehan on Twitter and at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I on Instagram. Folks, I hope you get to have a happy holiday just like our Daredevil here, and please don't turn into Kingpin and sit there going, Murdoch, Murdoch, Murdoch. I'm definitely funny and hilarious. Back to you, Nico. Greetings, X's for Podcast and Excelsior. I am Mike Manzi. This is my first time here on the podcast, and I have been given the task of reviewing the Marvel Holiday Special number one. So first, just a little background. I'm something of a podcaster myself. Along with Joey Lewandowski, we have co-founded the Cage Club Podcast Network. I have several shows on the network that I co-host, including some with Joey. 
like the titular Cage Club podcast and also Monsters That Made Us with Dan Cologne. So first up, what I'd like to do is describe this amazing cover by Art Adams. This is a terrific front and back splash page of many of the heroes in this book chasing down Santa Claus. And we have Captain America front and center saying, stop that bearded man. And Wolverine saying, yeah, no one gives me a lump of coal and lives, bub. But we also got Thor, Spidey, Storm, Ghost Rider, Colossus, Punisher, The Thing, and several others. The look on this reindeer's face is priceless. Always loved Art Adams, big fan of his. So let's begin, shall we? First up, we have the table of contents. We have the editor, Renee Witterstater, and the editor-in-chief, Tom DeFalco. Now, there are nine tales of Marvel mirth and merriment tonight here. So let's get down to business with number one, possibly the most popular one that I'm going to review tonight, A Tale of Christmas Past with the X-Men, a miracle a few blocks down from 34th Street. This one is written by Scott Lobdell, art by Dave Cockrum. We got the inker Joe Rubenstein. We got letters by Roxanne Starr and colors by Patty Cockrum. So this appears to take place, you know, around the time or maybe even congruent to one of the previous X-Men holiday issues. Our lineup here, we have Storm, Banshee, Colossus, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler. They're all decorating the Christmas tree, and it's interesting that Nightcrawler is called an elf here, because it is Christmas and they're all elves. But it appears that the Cerebro alarm has gone off and they are in the presence of an extremely powerful mutant, possibly the most powerful mutant they have ever encountered. Then we cut to the Brotherhood on the street and the Blob is being mistaken for Santa Claus by a young kid. All of a sudden, the X-Men appear out of nowhere and fight the Brotherhood on the streets of New York. By the end of the fight, the Brotherhood have been turned into toys by none other than Santa Claus himself. That's right, it would appear that Kris Kringle, Santa Claus, is this Omega-level mutant. And he's out there in the Marvel Universe just kind of delivering gifts, and that's how he's using his powers. He wasn't around to, like, fight Magneto ever. Uh, He never sort of does any substituting over at Xavier's school. Just appears one night a year, uses Omega-level mutant powers to distribute gifts, and that's good enough for him. So I guess that's good enough for me. I actually kind of wish this story was a little bit longer. There's a few nice moments where the Brotherhood and the X-Men seem to be new rosters and they're running into each other for the first time here. One of them has a very astute observation of Wolverine. Wolverine's like, ah, this may take a while, but I have all 12 days of Christmas to slice you into ribbons. And (laughs) and the other guy is just saying, this new X-Man's insane. He just might do it. Uh, And so in the end, the new X-Men meet up with the original team who are over at Rockefeller center ice skating and that is the end of the first story the next story is called a christmas coda a vintage tale written by walt simonson drawn by art adams inking by al milgram lettering by brad k joyce coloring by marie javins so in this story it is christmas sue storm and franklin are out in the city and they're christmas shopping for reed and they're looking for something to get him franklin is being a typical young child of the 90s as i probably was and what he really has his eye on is this ornament of an ex-mutant killer crocodile which looks just like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. So I really thought that was a fun reference but Franklin's running around the packed streets of the cold New York City and he seems to get lost for a minute from Sue Storm, runs down a back alley and encounters a man who's sort of fading out of existence. Franklin is like the only guy who can see him and he's pleading for help but he can't move. It appears he is a type of ghost from Christmas past. Franklin runs around and he finds this person selling a key on the street but he must give up everything he 
has in order to take it. So he hands over his little not Ninja Turtle ornament and all the money he has so he can't buy dad a gift. But he gets the key. Sue is looking for him. Can't find him. Runs into Franklin as he's unlocking the chains on the fading man in, in the alleyway. And there's this huge sort of like cosmic explosion. And all that's left is this tiny little vintage like keepsake box just sitting there in the snow. So Franklin takes that and he gives it to Reed for Christmas. And he tells this whole story and everything. And inside the box is the not Ninja Turtle ornament. The ex-mutant killer crocodile is there. The thing picks up Franklin and they hang it on the tree. But Reed also notices that there's this shilling inside of this case as well. Uh, And that's when they all sit down and they talk about Charles Dickens. And they explain to Franklin all about Scrooge and how he may have just had an encounter similar to that himself. So that, that will conclude the second story. Now for our next story, maybe in my opinion, the weakest one here like it looks gorgeous but maybe not the best it's written by Stephen Grant the art is amazing it's a Klaus Janssen piece I would assume he's the only one listed under artist so he does the inks and the colors and the pencils so it's all him and then we have Phil Felix on lettering but ultimately it's like Punisher out on Christmas Eve and like the one thing he really wants for Christmas is to you know like kill bad guys and everything so he's sort of you know staking out this deal under the railroad tracks and uh, he gets involved and he gets onto like the car but the Punisher is sort of dealt with in this like he's shot in the face or something like he's definitely shot in his body armor you know a couple times he falls off the car and then the car that he was just on explodes and it would appear that the guy doing the deal with these mobsters double crossed them and it's like raining money down on all of the poor people under the bridge at the end and Punisher sort of standing over everybody as the snow falls being like yeah, enjoy it while you can Christmas only comes once a year the world is hell and brimstone and all that you know stuff that makes Punisher feel good you know it's a little strange to have like a Punisher Christmas story unless it's like a little more heartfelt there's just nothing warm about this the art is gorgeous and that's kind of all I really like about it but very interesting to be including this one and that is the third story our next story is Twas a Midwinter's Night and this is a tale of Thor God of Thunder or at least Fine Folks of Asgard, written by Tom DeFalco, art by Sal Bushima, lettering by Roxanne Starr, and colors by Glynis Oliver. All right, so this one's kind of interesting because All Father Odin himself, Wotang, is sort of one of the direct like references for Santa in general, like Father Christmas and, and all that. So it's neat to see it all come full circle here because Odin is going to kind of jump on the old eight legged horse and drop some gifts towards the end of this. But it starts with, from what I understand, real life hero Sigurd is lost at sea we cut back and forth between him and his loved ones at home you know they're waiting for him they're like how's he ever gonna get back in time for Christmas you know over the old rainbow bridge up on Asgard out of nowhere this guy Grylax the Greater demands an audience and he said he's gonna crash an asteroid into Asgard and there's nothing they can do about it unless they take him seriously you know like realize that I am on your level but Odin's like nah we will bide our time we will see what happens and he Thor to wait before 
unleashing him at a later date. So a little bit of time passes and he finally sends Thor to go deal with this guy. And Thor pretty much, you know, just beats him up. And then when he destroys the asteroid, it creates an explosion in space so big that Sigurd sees it from Midgard and it helps guide him home by lighting up the sky. And when his wife wakes up, lo and behold, there is a bounty of food and gifts and everything that has been left for them. She runs outside, she greets Sigurd, they embrace, they look up in the sky, and who do they see? It's all father flying away. It is not his eight-legged horse. He is flying away on two rams. So apologies there. Uh, he's He's got two rams pulling his cosmic sleda and uh, singing a good midwinter to all. Our next tale was maybe my favorite. Like this one really kind of got to me. I wasn't, wasn't expecting any of these to really be that warm and heartfelt because I just figured they were doing this issue to have some fun with it. But this one was really interesting. It's called Precious Gifts. It's a Captain America story. It's written by Len Kaminsky. Uh, the breakdowns are by Ron Lim. The finishes are by James Sanders. The letters are by Roxanne Starr. And the colors, Marie Jadins. So this is really interesting. Steve Rogers basically goes to see the vets during Christmas. And he's at like the Foreign Legion Hall. And he's chipping in. And he's helping to give out stuff. And he's talking to this lady. She's like, yeah, you know, my brother and I got separated when we were younger. And, you know, I never got a chance to reconnect with him. He was off to war. He lied about his age. He went when he was young and he never came back. And Steve's like, oh, what, what's your what's your brother's name? And she goes, James Buchanan Barnes. And Steve, like, loses it. Like, he can't believe it. So what he does is on Christmas, dressed as Captain America, he goes to Bucky's sister's house and explains to her, like, your brother was Bucky. He and I were best friends. Like, we beat up a lot of Nazis together. Like, he saw me punch Hitler. I mean, he didn't say that in the comic, but you get the drift. And she's like, oh, that's so terrific. You know, we never got a chance to reconnect. I always thought, like, we were on, you know, bad terms and this and that. And Cap gives her a little memento to remember Bucky by. I think it was, like, maybe one of the few personal items that he had of Bucky's. And Cap's like, well, I, I got to get going. And she's like, you're going nowhere, mister. You're part of the family now. And Captain America spends Christmas with Bucky's long-lost sister and I was like whoa so that was a really nice story there you know I thought that was it's really well written it's a nice reveal I guess people don't know at this point that Steve Rogers is Captain America somehow because she didn't recognize him as Captain America in or out of costume but hey either way it was a very nice story maybe my favorite I really like that one next up we have Ghost Rider in Ghosts of Christmas Past by Howard Mackey John Hebert and Al Milgram now this this story is kind of crazy. A little blind boy has been kidnapped for ransom and when the story starts he has just jumped from a moving car and is running through the woods at night. I mean he, and the child is blind so he is blindly running through the woods but his inner monologue describes how he is not afraid of the dark and he's sort of calling upon Santa to help him to save him at Christmas because he's been such a good boy. But Santa, that Omega level mutant that we've learned about, does not show up. Instead, Ghost Rider is just in the middle of this forest and the young boy bumps into him, can't see him, but hears the jingle jangle of his chains and mistakes them for those jingling bells of Santa Claus and actually thinks that Ghost Rider is Santa. Ghost Rider dispatches the would-be kidnappers rather quickly and violently. He takes the young child, puts him upon his motorcycle, which the boy believes is his sleigh. He assumes that the warmth that he feels is the glow from Rudolph's nose, but it is in fact, you know, the fiery wheels of his hell cycle. And off they go into the night and Ghost Rider returns the young child back.
back to his family and when they ask the boy what happened where were you he says oh it's okay Santa saved me and they look up on the roof and see that it is on fire because Ghost Rider has just launched himself off it the way Santa would and that concludes that portion of the comic book okay so our next story is Captain Ultra in It Came and Went on a Midnight Clear this one is by Scott Lobdell Dennis Jensen and Barb Kahlberg now, I gotta admit that even as a little kid, I really didn't know Captain Ultra. I kind of can't remember this guy for the life of me. Is it a Mandela effect kind of thing? Because look at his costume. It is like impossible to forget this person. I don't know. I mean, I know I must have known him at one point. Anyway, this is a very strange story. I mean, mostly played for laughs. It's probably trying to be the funniest one out of everything. But D-grade hero Captain Ultra is flying over the city and everyone's like, look, it's that Avenger guy. Guy. and someone's like no 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 it's that defender guy and captain ultra's like please please my adoring crowd uh but then thor comes flying by and that's who they were all pointing at and and thor knocks him out of the sky and into an alley basically what happens here is that captain ultra has discovered that all of these people's christmas trees have just got up and left on their own and it turns out that the vicious plant man has taken all of the trees and commanded them to return to the earth so that they could heal the ozone yes folks we are dealing with a true 90s eco-villain here and it's pretty cool that what happens next was quite unexpected is that uh, Captain Ultra agrees with Plant Man and they join forces and they replant all of the Christmas trees and that's it that's that's the end of this one yeah I was kind of shocked but it was kind of cool to see the ozone layer get a reference and the hole in the ozone layer that was big when I was in middle school so yeah that was a very strange little tale with Captain Ultra okay and last Last but not least, we have Spider-Man in A Spider-Man Carol by Danny Fingeroth, Don Garney, and Mike DiCarlo. So in this one, Peter Parker has accompanied J. Jonah Jameson to the children's hospital to take pictures and they're taking pictures but it turns out that the clown that was hired to entertain the kids has canceled. So quick thinking Peter Parker sneaks out, changes into Spider-Man, comes in and tries to cheer up all the kids but J.J. is not having it and he's like get this Spider-Man out of here. He's a menace. But all the kids start coming up one by one and this was crazy. The first little boy was like hey hey no 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 no. Spider-Man saved my life. The vulture was fighting near my my building and like I got knocked off the roof and Spider-Man saved me and Jonah's like all right all right well it's still not good enough and then another kid is like yeah Spider-Man saved me too while he was fighting another supervillain right near me and this like goes on a couple it appears like this is a children's word for kids who were injured during Spider-Man battles <laughs> and one of the kids is like and you're no exception Jonah Spider-Man saved you he saved your son you know your son who turned into a werewolf eventually like he saved your wife he saved you like lighten up Jonah and then in the meantime I don't get this but like a bunch of thieves break into the hospital to steal all of the money that the patients have like their bright idea is like oh when you go to the hospital they take your wallets and everything and they put it all in one big room the safe room like we're gonna hit that but Spider-Man's there trying to entertain kids and his spider sense goes off so he goes and he tries to dispatch the crooks and that rumble makes its way into the children's ward and one of them like grabs 
grabs a kid, puts an Uzi to his head, but it's okay. Spider-Man like takes care of everything, dispatches the situation, and in fact, Jonah picks up something and smashes it over the head of one of the crooks and actually teams up with Spider-Man. And so, you know, he's like, all right, Spider-Man, you can stay. But Spider-Man is like, nah, see you later, everybody. I got to be going. Uh, and the kids all cheer and everyone's happy and uh, wishes everyone a Merry Christmas. And that's the end of that. All right, true believers, that'll do it. I've been Mike Manzi. Enough said. Hey everybody, Nico here. Welcome back to another X-Jam holiday celebration here at Excess for Podcast. Now we've had an amazing time covering those first few books and we're going to jump things forward just a little bit from the 80s and 90s to a little bit more of a, a modern look for things with double coverage on double issues of Gen X. And yeah, I know Gen X was the 90s, but it was kind of like that turning point where everything went from, I'm Frank Castle, look how many guns, to like skin was literally like a melting person. You know what I mean? We're going to take a look a little bit further down at X-Men 109, which as soon as I thought about that issue, I was like, no, it's got to be Nathan and Steve. No, And then when I found out that Steve had never read it, that was just like, it was perfect, right? Holiday gift to me. Right? We're also going to take a look at another Marvel holiday special in the form of Holiday Special 2004's incredible Emma and Wither story. So stay tuned for more awesome X-Holiday Jam. <music> Welcome back to another segment of X is for Podcast. I'm Josh Will. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And from now until November 8th, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. Today we're doing part two of our holiday special, and uh, because I am the huge Generation X fan of the X is for Podcast family, I'm going to be talking about two of my favorite gen x holiday issues number four and 24 which you know i don't think to anyone's surprise are ones that just of my own volition i have reread in a recent say within oh god I don't, I don't even i can't even tell time anymore like time is just so amorphous in the covid era maybe pre-covid era maybe during covid era but definitely in the last few years i have refreshed and read these again and they they hold up they hold up so good so we'll begin with Generation X number four. Now, this is a Between the Cracks, a holiday fable created by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo with inks by Mark Buckingham, colors by Ugoletto, and... <laughs> Letters by Starkings and Comics Craft. So this is our first Christmas issue. It's number four. So we started with a, essentially issues one through three are the opening story with M. Plate as the villain. After issue four, we go into Age of Apocalypse. So Lobdell's got one month, tell a single story and it's holiday story. And so we get the kids going into the city. And if you're a Hellions fan, get excited. Nanny and Orphan Maker. This is a Nanny and Orphan Maker story. Although because it's drawn by Chris Bocciolo, Orphan Maker looks boxed wild. He looks a lot like M-Plate, to be honest. The Monet Sanquois brother. He's got this just his suit is just like hulked out with muscles and he's got like mojo cable dreads and like this huge purple plate going over his face like from his chest to like where his eyes are sticking out and it's a it's a look that only Chris Boslow could create and no one else could follow. But I mean 
Senior in a Chris Bocciolo book. It's got those early Gen X gutters that Bocciolo like would either print or draw. This one is, is very festive, blue with recurring Christmas bell clip art. It's clip art. It is, it is not drawings. It is not in, like it is clip art. And what we see here is the kids are going into town and there's a huge traffic stop because there's a, a hostage situation. So Gen X decides to kind of get involved and try to help out. And at this schoolhouse, there is a, a very special boy who is very mutated. He's He's got a big old dome and a lot of warp features. He is different and there have been problems. So his name is Elliot and, you know, they've been trying to to, I guess, people in the school or the school board were trying to help him, but they just kind of thought he was a monster and everyone just assumes he's a mutant. He's a damn dirty beauty. Um, and so he's got teachers and little kids held hostage. And so Jubilee's going to help out. Back at home, Chamber, who, God, I forget how beautiful Chamber looks when drawn by Chris Bocciolo. Like, there are just, there are things he can do. The way Chamber's hair is not subject to the laws of gravity, the, the eyes, the the colors of his his energy kind of soaking out around him no one else makes chamber look like bachelo does a, a gorgeous boy and we've got him uh bringing some apple slices to penance we've got husk doing some work for emma who's her new mentor and you know we're in very early we're in establishing the character mode here so husk is super type a gotta overachieve gotta prove to the headmistress that i'm the best and i'm gonna be the captain and you know and emma can emma smells desperation a mile away and cannot leave it alone. But in our main story, we've got Banshee, we've got Sink, we've got Skin, Jubilee, and Monet, which is actually, you know, two girls in a trench coat tending to be Monet, but at this point, you just know it's Monet, and they're going to try to resolve this situation. Orphan Maker comes out of an ice cream truck. <laughs> he's going to murder a lot of people. He makes them orphans. That's what he does. And he's here. Nanny sent him here to collect Elliot because they think Elliot's a mutant. Jubilee goes in ready to fire and fight. And then she finds out that he's not a mutant. He's just a sad boy who people make fun of and it's not fair. So Skin and Banshee take care of Orphan Maker. The kid dies and it's sad. Like he wasn't a mutant. You know, they, the hostage, everyone thinks it's a win because the hostages get out. But it's, it's sad. And, you know, and they say he wasn't even a mutant. He's just ugly. But because of the way people hate mutants, they hated him. And, and then we get to the end. And at the end, Jubilee's trying to read the next issue, break the fourth wall and read the next issue for us. And the MCON crystal comes and it covers over the page and we're going to Age of Apocalypse. And it's so good. And then we get, you know, the X-Facts. We get the list telling us that next month, it's the Astonishing X-Men. It's Generation Next, Amazing X-Men, Gambit and the Externals, Factor X, Weapon X, X-Men, and Excalibur RE. Starting with X-Men Alpha by Joe Madiera. So it's an interesting holiday issue. The big thing is just kind of like the sad boy dies. You get some cool orphan maker. And, you know, there's that, that, that rub about the mutants. Doesn't really go into too much Christmassy stuff, but... It's it's snowing, so it's got that holiday feel the whole time. You know, one of those that uh, young me definitely like after school special vibes when I first read it. Young Josh loved this. Old Josh still loves it, but not as much as Generation X twenty four. So Generation X twenty four is one that I have bragged about online.
mine before because this is this is a favorite of mine. So we'll start with some credits here. This is Home for the Holidays, uh, written by Scott Lobdell with art by Leonardi. A lot of artists, Rick Leonardi, Mitch Bird, inks by Bud LaRosa and Jason Martin, letters by Richard Stark and Comic Craft, colors by Steve Bucoletto. So Lobdell created Generation X, first introducing the characters during the Fowling's Covenant and his extended run on Uncanny X-Men, then launching the title itself and penning it through the first 28 issues alongside Chris Bocciolo, plus an extra four issues during Age of Apocalypse. As Lobdell ramped up towards Operation Zero Tolerance, the line-wide mega crossover he orchestrated across all X titles, which also acted as his kind of swan song as head of X, he took a moment in this issue, 24, to have a quiet moment with the girls, where he could explore and add depth to some major characters and their backstories. Now, this issue opens with a beautiful full-page spread of Emma, stunning as always in white, standing in the doorway of the San Croix Beach House in Monaco. Emma soliloquizes about how much she loves the anticipation of Christmas Eve. And I, I want to call it inappropriate, but I'm willing to just explain it as Emma is sexy even when she's not being sexy because she's Emma. And I love Emma. I love all of these girls. This features four characters. It features Emma. It features Jubilation. It features Monet. And it features Paige. And I love each one more than the next. So Emma's sitting with the girls and they're talking about Christmas. They're teasing Paige about her confounding relationship with Chamber. Paige wants everything in her life to be perfect. And her love life is anything but. So she's kind of ashamed. Not not of Jono, but of herself for not being able to make it into something it can't be. And she doesn't like to talk about it, which is perplexing to Monet, who uh, knows no shame, has no idea what shame is. And Jubilee, who wants to talk about everything. So Jubilee argues that they, the sorority of Generation X, should be able to tell each other anything. And Emma doesn't disagree. So she encourages them to get started. Jubilee starts by sharing the story of the first time she discovered her mutant powers. She was hanging around the Hollywood Mall with her bestie, causing trouble and running from the security guards, much like when we first meet her in Uncanny 244. The guards get the best of her and she's cornered, about to get sent to Juvie, and she's terrified and it just kind of happens. Explosions from her fingertips that blind the guards and give her an opportunity to escape. When Sinjen, Jubilee's bestie, finds her, she's in a fountain, soaking her hands to make the burning stop. It's it's scary and beautiful and personal and even for Jubilee, sharing the story is a step behind her normal loquaciousness. It's, it's intimacy and, you know, there's kind of a, a weird, beautiful, like there's some awkward art on this page but the face, like Jubilee's making this just like ugly sad, crying, like too many emotions face that like breaks your heart a little and her friend just grabs her and hugs her and I love it. So next up is Monet and she tells a bullshit fairy tale about flying around Monaco like a Disney princess, which I guess technically she is now. Nobody really buys her BS and on top of it, telling a perfect story like that is nothing at all like what Jubilee did. Jubes opened up and shared something flawed and personal that made her vulnerable around her friends. Monet was just full of shit. So Jubilee mentions how Monet isn't perfect because she has her quote unquote episodes, which may or may not be autism and nearly immediately after she has another one. And while the girls don't see what's actually going on, we finally do. So this is a big character revelation here. And what happens is these episodes, when Monet goes canatonic into her seizures, they're not seizures. That's just what it looks like on the outside because inside she's receiving a psychic visit from her brother Marius, aka M-Plate. Now M-Plate is a character that I only ever find really interesting in connection to M. He's a big, scary, immoral bad guy with a cool botulo design, but he's tormented and because he's an immoral bad guy, I don't give a shit. But because of the emotional toll that extracts on Monet in these moments, I do. And that's what we get here. There's also some great foreshadowing at the beginning of the visit when Marius pauses before calling her quote unquote Monet as if knowingly mocking her by using that name. 
statement implying that she might not actually be who she says she is because she's she's not she's two girls in a trench coat copying bachelor created characters is never easy for artists but they do a pretty good job of giving the feel of bachelor here not necessarily in the way they draw m plate because it's definitely like knockoff bootleg grade m plate but the the reaching hands and the ghosts and the aura the things they do around him help give it the feel of bachelor which gets a pass next up is my girl Paige. Paige guthrie love her so much and we get to see a younger version of her so in the era of uh them they're new mutants her brother is a mutant he can fly and he's gonna be an x-man and she is so jealous she wants to be a mutant and she wants to be an x-man and she wants to do it better than her brother does so she tries jumping off the roof of the barn to see if she can fly she tries submerging herself in freezing cold water she tries talking to bugs with her mind all embarrassing failures then one night she's outside she's crying to god being vulnerable and honest with her creator and it happens her prayers are answered and she has one of the most disgusting powers that any other teenage girl would be mortified by but she falls to her knees with tears of gratitude and joy as she's like ripping her skin off because she's just so happy to be a mutant i love Paige so much so after Paige's story the four head outside and begin walking along the beach and emma decides to follow suit and do something she very rarely does she opens up to the girls now emma frost does not like to be vulnerable but this is different this is good she tells the girls about how her parents had put her in an asylum for hearing voices and being a pretty blonde girl who nobody believed made it very easy for the guards to do bad things at night until one night she realized she could do more than just take thoughts out of people's heads she could just as easily put thoughts in as i left i never looked back and i've never had to ask for anything twice my entire life now this is some problematic scott lobdell shit here characters don't need to be raped to make them interesting let's just be clear about that whether or not it's a good thing that in the super duper cringy emma frost maxi series by carl ballers that this doesn't ever happen or appear at all i don't know because like that book's just a whole mess of problems to begin with my canon of emma history goes to new x-men and this is one of those shots where you know labdell is is trying to add depth he can't because he's got problems being a decent human being as we would learn later on problematic creator alert you know but it's for me the thing i like about this is not that it happened but that what we're getting here is not a story it's not rape in a way that takes away the agency of the female character if anything it gives the female character agency and it's in a story that has no male characters so this isn't a female character being abused as a plot device to tell a male character story this is a female character opening up and being vulnerable with other female characters sharing her pain because it's okay because surrounded by these other female characters she is in a safe place and can do so in a way that is healthy so the issue ends with the four ladies sitting on a rock out in the water very little mermaid-esque watching the sunrise over the mediterranean closer to each other than they've ever been and before the issue ends we get well and so you know they're on this little mermaid rock and you know it ends in very kind of campy style where it's hard to tell because they're all in shadow but i think it's monet is just like just say merry christmas jubilee and so jubilee wraps up by saying merry christmas jubilee and then before the issue ends we get like a mid credit scene of sorts setting us up for the big double-sized special in next month's 25 it's mondo and he's got a secret irish bad guy boss hiding among the shadows uh in the trees like a peeping tom like a shadowy peeping tom like a like a black tom <coughs> um and yeah 25 is gonna be fun but uh 24 man 24 gets me in the feels i love this book 
I love these. Like this is it for a creator who's somewhat problematic to write a book that could like blow apart the Bechdel test like this. This is one of my favorite one-off kind of issues. I love more than I love the big X-Men stories. I've always loved the quiet moments in between like the table setting issues of everyone kind of like getting stuff back to normal or dealing with life in between, you know, big, massive, dire adventures. And this is one of my favorites, probably my absolute favorite from Generation X. Two fantastic holiday-ish issues, numbers four and 24 from Generation X. Back to you, Nico. Hey, everybody. So if you'll recall, during the last Holiday X-Jam, a very mysterious and handsome-sounding stranger recapped for you the entirety of the Generation X Holiday Special without ever once introducing themselves. So yeah, that was me, TK. You can find me on Twitter at xnatexgrayx. I post a lot of rants about how all the mutants on Krakoa are queer and polyamorous, and I post a lot of thirst traps from my basement gym. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about the following year's Generation X holiday stories. This time, it was not a standalone separate issue. It happened in the pages of issues 60 and 61. Issue 60 starts with this great cover that says, Mondo's back, but this isn't a friendly reunion. And we've got a picture of him looming large over Chamber, Jubilee, and Skin. It's a really great cover, and it's really exciting because, you know, as a person who loved Generation X right from the get-go, the introduction and then loss of Mondo really quickly was always a bit of a disappointment for me, so I was really excited to see in this issue that he had returned. This issue is called Christmas Fear, and it's actually, it says Christmas Cheer, but then Fear is pasted on top of it in scary scrawled out letters. It's written by Jay Farber. Pencils by Terry and Rachel Dodson that are so gorgeous. Kevin Tinsley is doing the colors and Richard Starkings, Comicraft, and Sida are doing the letters. And the first page shows us a woman running through the forest on a snowy day. And she says, oh no, God, please no. No! And then someone off camera says, don't be afraid, Cordelia Frost. It only hurts for a second. Now, this is amusing because when you find out who the person is, and it's not going to be a shock to anybody who knows the situation, but this is not a person that would be saying Cordelia Frost like that. This person would just say Cordelia. And it brings me to one of the things I love about these issues and this time period. It's 2000, and it's a time in which writers are still sort of following the rule that every issue could be somebody's first, and you know you need to write to explain everything. But they're also trying to work with trying to be more television-like in the dialogue and get a little more natural with it. And so you have this really like interesting blend of sort of the writing you see a lot more now and the writing you would see in the Claremont era, where somebody is jubilee, a teen is trying to explain everything that's happening in their lives, but also in a way that sounds like it would be the way a teen talks. And it's pretty great. Uh, we cut to the Massachusetts Academy, where we're getting a winter spin on an X-Men classic, which is rather than a baseball game, the kids are having a snowball fight. And they're really enjoying themselves because everybody's away for the holidays. This is the time at which the other students at the Massachusetts Academy are all humans. Adrian Frost convinced Emma that she needed to let humans in to make money for the school so it could stay open. So usually the kids have to hide their powers when everybody is there. But since it is Christmas break, they're all staying
staying at the school and all the mutants are staying at the school and all the humans have gone. So they can use their powers in this snowball fight. A skin has climbed up a tree. Chamber is just, you know, lit up. He's not covering his face anymore. A stray snowball hits Leech, who turns off Jubilee's power so that everybody can throw snowballs at her. Meanwhile, Penance is creating an ice sculpture of a very ripped man with a nice buttocks wearing a loincloth and carrying a staff. I gotta be honest with you guys, I was not reading at this time. I'm vaguely aware of a lot of stuff that happened, but I don't know who this is. It almost seemed like she might have been warning them about who the villain of this issue is going to be, and there's a hint for later, but I don't think that's what it is because of the way this man is drawn shirtless, just wearing a sort of, yeah, a loincloth, and the staff doesn't look like the person that we're getting to. But this is what what Penance is doing, and everybody uh, on Generation X is as bewildered as I am. We cut to to Sean Cassidy, Banshee, who is boxing with Tom Corsi, who many longtime X-Readers will recall was transformed at one point into a Native American and is still in that form here, which is colored very awkwardly, and I can't believe somebody hadn't retconned this by now. Tom makes a very cheesy, I could have been a contender joke, which I can't imagine that any kid reading this right now would have gotten that. I really appreciate Jay Farber for making that joke. Sean is in a bit of a state, uh, very clearly distracted, and it is because he is upset that he invited his daughter, Siren, Teresa Cassidy, to come to the Massachusetts Academy for Christmas, and she declined. She just had her throat slashed by Farrell and a group called the New Hellions, and she's not in a good way. And, you know, they don't have a great relationship at this time, and I can't imagine that seeing him is going to be the most comforting thing to her. So to me, it makes sense that she declined, but Sean is very upset about it. And this is the first sort of notion that we're going to get of the theme of this particular set of holiday issues, which is all about family. Emma Frost goes to her office where she has received a file on the new Hellions and is very upset that they have taken her team's name and thinks to herself, if someone thinks they can take the name of my dead students and get away with it, they've got another thing coming. So then we cut to the main room of the Massachusetts Academy, where Skin, Jubilee, Chamber, and Penance are sitting around the Christmas tree wrapping presents, and Skin declares, well, it's time to settle in for another orphan Christmas. <laughs> Jubilee rightly points out that he is not an orphan, and also Chamber is not an orphan, and we don't know what Penance is at this point. But Skin points out that his family thinks he's dead, and if they knew he was alive and a mutant, they would wish he was dead, so he might as well be an orphan. He is actually incorrect about this, but that'll come up later. Chamber basically says that that his parents are too rich and jet-settery to really care about him, which is definitely different than being an orphan. But yeah, I mean, again, we're, uh, this is the second, like, this orphan theme came up in the holiday special. That was really the, the tough thing for Jubilee was that she was an orphan, you know, the reminder that Generation X was her family. So the fact that we have uh, sort of all come together as people without families, even when we have families, yeah, you know, it's, mutants are, mutants are each other's chosen family it's a very there's there's the queer metaphor for you and i love it everybody's talking about who they're rapping giving their presents to jubilee hopes that logan's gonna like his skin 
hopes that Paige is going to like hers because she's been acting weird lately. I don't know what that's about. Again, I was not reading it this time. Something sets Penance off and she runs out of the room and they, you, they depict it like you would in a like kind of cool way with like multiple panels of her getting up and then just this great lo- like panel of her jumping through multiple panels. It's kind of tough to describe, but it's really cool except for there's this shot of everybody in the living room and like a puff of air like a cartoon puff of air from where she has run away (laughs) and just a very odd choice silly and not really in line with the rest of what's going on in this but they talk about how they can't know what's going on with penance because she can't speak and the only person that would know what penance is going through is monet and then we cut to another exclusive boarding school this one nestled in the swiss alps we're not going to name it it's just the swiss Alps boarding school. Again, I'm sure it was named at another point that I did not read about. And here we have Monet, who is really missing the Gen X crew. You know, she talks about how she said that she was too good for them, but, you know, now that she's away, she kind of misses them. And her roommate comes in (laughs) and invites her to another girl, Tabby's room, because she has a Ouija board, which is obviously, you know, I didn't realize, I thought Ouija board was a, like, just a general term and not a trademark, but clearly it is. And they can't say it here, so it's Quija. <laughs> they go to the other girl's room, and the door is locked. But Monet can sense telepathically that something is wrong, and we cut into inside the room where this girl is being held by a very Bella Lugosi vampire, like just very cheesy looking, who's about to bite her. And Monet doesn't want to use her super strength because she doesn't want to expose herself, but she cracks the door open. And by that time, poor Tabby has been drained and the vampire is gone. Now we cut back to the Massachusetts Academy where everybody, Emma, Sean, and all the kids are sitting around having hot cocoa. Jubilee is beseeching Banshee to let Artie and Leech open one present. And Sean, again, is just very distracted. And Jubilee says, hey, Sean, a little help here, dude. Tell the boys they got to wait. Sean says, uh-huh. Jubilee says, um, Sean, I've decided to leave school and become a game show host. Sean says, uh-huh. Finally, Jubilee screams, Sean! And yeah, Sean is distracted by this Teresa situation. The fact that Christmas changed for him when he found out that he had a daughter. And also when he found out that the person that had kept his daughter from him was his cousin, Black Tom. And it's, again, just this theme of family and how complicated family is on Christmas. And all of a sudden, Cordelia Frost smashes through a window, just jumps right through it and lands in the Massachusetts Academy living room. She immediately says, Emma, you've got to help me. He's after me. And Emma says, who? Who's after you? You need to tell me, Cordelia. I can't remember. I can't read your mind. Good reminder, family powers don't work on each other, although that is not consistent. And she of course Cordelia immediately passes out there's a really great panel here that I want to touch on for a second because this has been happening throughout but I haven't mentioned it yet the Dodsons do an amazing job of drawing Jubilee as very clearly Asian that's an important depiction and a lot of people miss out on it or make it really really subtle but the Dodsons do a really gorgeous job of it and Jubilee looks amazing here and I absolutely love this so knowing that there's you know somebody after Cordelia Sean tells the gang to suit up and go search the ground So we cut to them outside on the front lawn and they're all in their Generation X gold and red uniforms. God, I love these. I love these outfits. I love the masks. I love that in this case, it's just Jubilee has the large boots with knee guards, shin guards, and 
almost gauntlets. Like, it almost looks like hand warmer mittens. You know, sometimes these costumes do, I will admit, look a little clunky. But A, I love that they have their own spin on the X-Men blue and gold. And B, I love that every there's a little bit of individuality for everybody. Chamber's got his jacket on over it. The gang is suddenly attacked by a man-shaped rock, like, brick pile, which, you know, Jubilee's fireworks don't work on. Skin's obviously not going to get to. But Chamber blasts some bioenergy at the thing, and the pile of bricks just absolutely blows up. Sean and Emma fly in. It's just, like, this panel is so good because Sean is just kind of, they're, like, six feet above the ground, and Sean is carrying Emma. Like, Emma's grabbing onto Sean's hands and just dangling below him. Sean is in a more classic X-Men blue and gold with his black and yellow cape, and Emma is in her white queen spin on the Generation X outfit, which is basically all white with yellow gloves and her knee guard shin guard boots have heels which i love and then you know the red is just belt it's a belt she's she's belted for the gods they dive in and immediately are attacked along with the rest of the team by a man-shaped pile of snow which emma says i can't get a telepathic lock on him his mind is close to me sean jubilee jono combine your energies and hit him in unison which they do, and that stops the man-shaped pile of snow. And Sean points out that his sonic scream appeared to bother it most of all. But it returns again, and this time it's just a man-shaped clay thing that swiftly dispatches with Emma, Skin, Chamber, Jubilee, and last but not least, it comes to get Sean, who sonic screams at it and incapacitates it, and it turns out that it is Mondo. Which, of course, is going to be really confusing to everybody here because they saw Mondo get killed by Bastion. They're all standing around wondering what is going on here when Cordelia Frost runs out onto the front lawn, apparently having recovered from her head injury from smashing through a glass window, and demands that they kill Mondo because he was trying to kill her, which of course they are not going to do, but they do need to stop and figure out what they're going to do next. And while they are doing that, somebody from off panel says, I think you have something that belongs to me. And we cut to a full page panel of Black Tom and the juggernaut. Tom says, What's the matter, Sean? Aren't you glad to see your old cousin, Black Tom? I thought you'd want your family here for the holiday. Hope you don't mind if I brought my friend, Juggernaut, to the celebration. Yeah, okay, friend. They were roommates. Juggernaut says, Hiya, kids. Juggernaut and Black Tom are boyfriends. I will not be hearing anything more about it. Uh, He has brought his boyfriend and they like to work together and they are both in really fabulous outfits and weirdly, for some reason, Tom looks like he has a milk mustache. I have no comment on that in relation to the fact that he and Juggernaut are boyfriends, but they are, and that's how this issue ends. So now we go to issue number 61, which also has a really great cover. Both covers are by the Dodsons, and this one features Skin, Jubilee, and Sink attacking the Juggernaut. Skin's got his skin, his fingers wrapped all over Juggernaut. Jubilee's shooting fireworks and jumping in the air. Chamber is just fired up, but it's a great cover. I love it. So we've got Christmas Fear, again, scrawled over Cheer, part two, written by Jay Farber, pencils by Kevin Sharp, inks by Russell Ramos and Cezop, colors by Kevin Tinsley, and letters by Richard Starkin, Comicraft, and Wes. And we start with a full page panel of the Juggernaut saying, ho, ho, ho. If I do a Juggernaut voice, it's going to be the X-Men the Animated Series one. I can't not. But really, I also can't do that voice. 
So I'm going to try and cool it. Another full page of the Juggernaut smashing into the ground and attacking Jubilee, really. We just see Jubilee flying off panel and fireworks going everywhere. And Juggernaut says, Merry Xmas, kitties, from your uncle Juggernaut. Jubilee says, get clear, Skin. I got him. And Skin says, you what? Jubilee, this is Juggernaut we're talking about here. Like one of the most powerful hombres on the entire planet. Your fireworks aren't going to mean squat to him. Which, 100% correct. And this is where we get one of those moments of really not natural teen dialogue where Jubilee explains that it's a good thing that the normal students have gone home because it would be really weird for them to see Juggernaut and Black Tom here and the kids using their mutant powers in these paramilitary uniforms, but one of them is having wears a leather jacket over his. And yeah, that would be pretty weird. And Banshee screams at Tom, Tom, this is madness. You can't just attack us like this. What do you want? And Tom says, tis, tis, cousin Sean. I just want to be with family for the holidays. And, you know, again, there's that theme, holidays, family. Emma's trying to get her family, Cordelia Frost, out of the mix and away from Mondo. And we get into a fight between Black Tom and Sean. Again, we get that reminder that family can't affect each other with their mutant powers. So Sean just grabs a lead pipe, which happens to be lying around and is going to beat Black Tom manually rather than with powers. But he's kind of getting his ass handed to him by Black Tom, who asks, whatever happened to that tough guy? ex-spy and Emma is very worried about Sean but Cordelia says Emma stay with me they're going to kill me and this brings us to I think my favorite panel of this whole thing where Emma turns around and slaps Cordelia across the face and says plastic Cordelia you need to be strong now I don't condone family on family violence but uh that was funny we cut to a panel of juggernaut grabbing skin you know holding him in a tight grip but of course that's skin he is going to slip out of that, which he, of course, promptly does. And Juggernaut is just completely bewildered by this, which I think is really, really funny. Jubilee comes in for an attack that does nothing but annoy Juggernaut, which is enough because it was just to distract him while Chamber gets fired up. And Chamber unleashes a blast of bioenergy that just over the course of panels get stronger and stronger and Juggernaut is moving closer and closer and the light is getting brighter and brighter and it's just these two guys in silhouette with all this energy and just this giant explosion until cut to a panel of just smoke and everybody is standing around wondering what happened and who's going to come out of the smoke and of course it is Juggernaut holding the limp body of Chamber and Sean screams at Black Tom if that boy's hurt I'll Tom says you'll what your powers can't hurt me and he's just got this shit-eating grin on his face that i am living for and emma says no but mine can and she takes over black tom's mind and tells him to turn his powers on the juggernaut which he does and starts blasting juggernaut with energy there's like i i feel like a panel must be missing here or something because somehow juggernaut there's a panel of black tom blasting juggernaut with energy and then in the next panel he has completely incapacitated him and is just leaning him against a tree to like put him aside while he deals with uh, Generation X, but okay. Juggernaut does his classic thunderclap that creates a shockwave that knocks out the entire Generation X team. And that is the end of that scene. We cut to Monet outside her exclusive Swiss Alps boarding school, still unnamed, while they carry out the body of the girl who was drained by a Dracula in the last issue. And as they're standing around, that Dracula comes up to them, and it's their headmaster, Mr. Delacour. He does not look like a Dracula now. He is regular teeth, regular outfit, no Bella Lugosi stuff going on. And he says to Monet, 
What kind of headmaster would I be if I let my girls gawk at some gruesome scene? Monet, would you please take Charlene back to your room so she can get some rest and then come to my office, please? I'd like to speak with you in private. It is very creepy and a little skeezy. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Because now we're going to cut back to the Massachusetts Academy where the villains, again, Juggernaut, Mondo, and Black Tom, are all standing around while Generation X and Cordelia are wrapped up in a steel beam unable to move. And Black Tom asks, Are you folks comfy? Please don't look at Mondo to save you. I can assure you that won't be happening. You see, Mondo has never met any of you, save Cordelia, of course. And Jubilee says, What? What are you talking about? And Tom says, Do you want to tell them or should I? And Cordelia God, I love this panel. She gives him just the nastiest look, but says nothing. And this is where Black Tom recounts this story of how Cordelia Frost was attempting to get into the Hellfire Club as White Queen, the Hellfire Club at the time run by Shinobi Shaw. She befriended Mondo and then incapacitated him, put him in a weird back-to-tank thing, and brought him to the Hellfire Club as an offering. But their negotiations for her entry into the Hellfire Club were cut short because because the foot soldiers of somebody named Barrington infiltrated the Hellfire Club and took Mondo. Black Tom reveals in this issue that he was Barrington and he took custody of Mondo, cloned him, sent the clone to infiltrate Generation X, and kept the real Mondo and raised him as his son. Okay. While this is a little weird, I also want to say it's something I would really love to see revisited in the Krakoa era. Black Tom is around, Mondo is around, you know, their powers are work right now uh, in a really interesting like mutant circuit kind of way it would be really interesting to see them bring that relationship back to the forefront you know Black Tom and the Juggernaut seem to be getting back together maybe they can raise Mondo as their own yeah this is there's a lot of potential here Marvel call me I'll write this for you we cut to a panel of Skin who reminds us of something that I actually did forget which is that Penance is hanging around she ran off a while ago but she has not been a part of any of this and is still on the grounds he also says having control over my own skin makes me a pretty good artist too and I think he means escape artist I think they forgot that word but the point being that you know he can get out of this steel beam that they're all trapped in so you know we can see where this is going but we cut to a panel of Mondo holding Cordelia Frost by the face and saying I've been waiting a long time for this friend and they're obviously getting ready to initiate some kind of uh, last end to this plan Sean makes a revenge is a dish best served cold reference you know which never gets old and that's when skin finally breaks out distracting everybody Pennant shows up cuts the team out of the steel beam and we get a really good gorgeous panel of Emma, Sean, Jubilee, Skin, and Chamber getting into battle formations, preparing to take these guys on. Juggernaut asks Chamber, you want to go another round, kid? And Chamber says, nah, but I think she's interested. And this is funny because Juggernaut's got his helmet on. Chamber uses, he speaks psionically. So I feel like Juggernaut shouldn't be able to hear him, right? How'd that work? But we get a panel of Pentance jumping Juggernaut from behind. And of course, she is the right person to fight Juggernaut. Chamber takes on Black Tom, who is is not ready for his bioenergy and skin and jubilee go to mondo and say it doesn't have to go down hard mondo yeah don't make us hurt you we used to be friends and mondo points out that he is not that person he's not friends with them and he has no qualms with beating them into a coma sean reminds the kids that they can't hold back on mondo because he is not their friend penance manages to get juggernaut's kirby hat off but interestingly under that he is wearing another like form-fitting helmet that still appears to be metal. Like you can see it's got bolts in it, which they've got to be very, very thin. 
I don't get how they're screwed in. But he is like still wearing a very thin helmet, which Banshee swoops in from behind. I don't know how he would be able to do that subtly, considering that his flight is dependent on a sonic Banshee scream. But he swoops in from behind and rips off the smaller helmet that Juggernaut was wearing, which leaves him totally vulnerable to Emma, who says, oh yes, without that helmet, there's nothing standing between my telepathy and your mind, such as it is. Boom, roasted by Emma. Black Tom says, no, no, this isn't happening. Mondo, remember the plan, son. Get us out of here. And Mondo merges with the Earth and creates a, like, giant Earth ball to wrap Juggernaut and Black Tom in and transports them away. Again, I don't really understand how this would work, but uh, that's okay. We get another really great panel of the team standing around, the team and Cordelia. And we've added penance, too. So it's a really great team shot. Cordelia looks pretty distraught. And, you know, since Mondo's still out there, he's still going to try to kill her. And Jubilee asks, so Emma, was that really Mondo? Maybe Tom was lying? And Emma says, no, I scanned Tom's mind. He was telling the truth. As much as I wish otherwise, that was the real Mondo. And Banshee says, which means Tom is raising another child. Great. But, you know, Tom, despite some of his issues, has been a pretty good child raiser. I don't know. I mean, you know, he raised a criminal too. I don't, he he loves the kids. I choose to believe it. I want this uh, Mondo, Black Tom, father-son reunion on Krakoa book. That is the end of Generation X's story, but we cut to Headmaster Delacour's office at Monet's exclusive unnamed Swiss Alps boarding school. This is a gorgeous, spacious, well-appointed office with a large desk with two seats on the other side of the desk opposite where the headmaster himself should be sitting. But rather than sitting there, they are sitting on a couch, like a two-seater in the middle of the office. And Mr. Delacour is very relaxed. Monet is very uncomfortable. This is already not a good setup. And Delacour starts to try and hypnotize Monet with his vampire powers, which of course do not work on her with her telepathic power set. And so he goes full vampire, red eyes, fangs, and simply attacks her. And it has a very essay vibe. I kind of don't like it, but it only lasts for a second because the vampire says, I will have you. And Monet says, over my dead body, and then punches this guy off of her. She is, of course, super strong and is not going to be taken down by this weird Bella Lugosi vampire dude. He says that he would take her up on that offer, but he was unprepared for her tenacity and he jumps out the window and Monet ends the issue thinking to herself, a vampire. I just fought a vampire. Maybe I should call the Academy. Some of the other kids ran into some vampires not too long ago, but I guess I shouldn't panic too much. After all, it's not like he bit me and we see that he did in fact bite her. I can't really see where this would have happened, but that's none of my business. So, you know, we're ending this on a cliffhanger having to do with Monet possibly becoming a vampire or a vampire slayer as the next issue is called Monet Vampire Slayer. So that is the end of Christmas Fear. Uh, Another, I think, great Generation X uh, holiday experience. I really loved how this one had a lot of family theme to it. You know, it reminded us that Generation X are a family. Mutants are a family. They're a chosen family. They take care of each other. And, you know, family stuff is complicated. Your cousin might steal your daughter who might not want to see you because she got her throat slashed. Stuff happens. It's uh, it's tough. But we take care of each other. We take care of our community as best we can. And we try and get through the holidays as best we can. I just want to say I am a little new to the X's for Podcast team and I 
I have really, really loved being a part of this so far. I've had some really great conversations and gotten to know some amazing people, both contributors and listeners. And I just want to say thank you all so much for giving me this opportunity, for letting me talk to you all, and for being such a welcoming group. This is really an amazing gift for the holidays. And I love you all, and I hope you have a great holiday. Hello and welcome to X's for Podcast. It's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A, and today I'm joined by... It's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at DazzlerAOA. So it's Christmas and there's X-Men, and I think they celebrate it like 50 times a year, as many X-Men issues as there are with Christmas, and it's all supposed to be in 10 years. So <laughs> that means we're really talking about X-Men 109, which is... The this amazingly transitional story. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's the story yeah. in between the X-Men that came and the X-Men that Claremont would develop further, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I know you haven't really read the Revolution era and you haven't gotten to Extreme X-Men yet and I'm going to make you. Sorry. Right, I, I'm looking <laughs> forward advance. to it. I'm looking forward to getting into Extreme. All of this is completely new to me. I have no reference point for jumping into this. There's a point in this issue where Rogue just pops out Wolverine's bone claws and is like, this is permanent. And I'm like, no, it's not Rogue, but where did, where did you get those from? <laughs> so, like, with this X-Men 109, it's a little bit where it is, right? So, the issue before for this issue is actually the issue where Moira McTaggart dies. What? And the issue... <laughs> yes. Really? Yes. This issue is so weird. It is. <laughs> and the issue after this is the issue where Kate Pride drops the ashes for Colossus off at his collective that he grew up in. So, like, it's like a Christmas issue sandwiched in between two horribly depressing issues. So... No, not just Moira died in the last issue in 108, but Senator Kelly, too. So Moira and Senator Kelly died in 108. I knew that Senator Kelly had just died. I knew that Senator Kelly had just died, who I'm familiar with from his anti-mutant days. But I did not know that Moira had just died because she is not mentioned in this issue. However, Senator Kelly is like five times. That is fucked up <laughs> it is fucked up so going on at the same time the same month in in uncanny there was a funeral for moira so like they have the funeral for moira and the christmas issue released at the same <laughs> time to moira. i mean to moira's goal <sighs> yeah i know right <laughs> it wasn't really moira it's so crazy but yeah after after reading this i read the issue before again and the issue after it and i was like wow this is a lot of forced cheer sandwich in between some really heavy shit okay yes you mentioned forced cheer i i need to give some background for the audience i've never read a revolution era comic i have never read this part of uh, uh, x-men or uncanny i have no idea what's happening did not read the issue before or after and uh on top of all of that like absolutely there's a part in this comic where Piotr rasputin sees what he thinks is his to my knowledge very dead younger sister iliana in the crowd and he's just smiling about it he's like oh that's so nice it's the ghost of my sister that i'm imagining here and i'm like what is going on in this issue totally is very strange it is and and the next month he dies in uncanny no way. he like literally dies that? in uncanny yes <laughs> what the fuck 
<laughs> Wild. This is such a fun issue. So it's this is an era and a half, right? It was very transitional setting it up for the Morrison era. This issue itself is obviously setting up for the extreme X-Men Diaries run for Claremont. Yeah. This might be the most Im- yeah. this might and be the most important Christmas if you issue ever. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I had the pleasure of doing some crazy voices on X-Men 98 was kind of important because, you know, it set Jean Grey up to be Phoenix. But yeah, this one really is like, holy shit, there's a lot going on Mm. here. So what was it like jumping into the weirdness going on with Rogue at this point? (laughs) I was just like, all right. Uh, So uh, Rogue Rogue has having headaches. She's she's mad. She's kind of gone back to the days of like, don't touch me, Gambit. Honestly, her and Gambit were like the heart of this issue in a lot of ways, as well as like Psylocke and Orin in, in a different way. But Rogue and Gambit were really fun to read in this issue. I was reminded of exactly what I love about 90s Rogue and Gambit. They're, they're really fun together. They always have drama, even when they're extremely committed to each other. Rogue in particular is really cool because she's like, she spends all, this whole issue being like, y'all are adults and you can do whatever you want, sexually or otherwise, I don't mind. But like, there are consequences to your exes. And yeah, no, like, I, I really liked that. I enjoyed it all. She has Wolverine's bone claws and she thinks they are for sure permanent. So that's, I don't know why that that's happening to her she's shooting off cyclops's beams but she doesn't have control over them which is strange i think because i think usually people have control over cyclops eye blasts um yeah i don't know, I don't know what else she's wearing some sunglasses that make her look like sage sage is in this issue so during maximum security rogue absorbed a scroll i think the scroll was named was Zan. So Rogue's got mutated DNA from a scroll that she absorbed, and now she's recalling powers. And that comes up in Extreme X-Men a lot. Yeah, it was kind of permanent until the Vargas thing, and you're going to read all of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll bear with it. At this point, it just seems like she's kind of like the Mimic. She is kind of like the Mimic right now. She is. She is exactly like the Mimic. And this is your first introduction to Neil Shara. Mm-hmm. Like, it's Thunderbird. So, like, you jump into it. Like, you just read the issue where basically he broke up Warren and Betsy, even though Betsy was like, why are you fucking breaking up with me, Warren? That's 100% on Warren. Warren is like, (laughs) Warren sees Betsy, like, flirting around with Neil Shara as if he has not ever seen her with Cyclops. And... He's like, she's her own woman. I can stake no claim to her. She can do whatever she likes. It's a free country, Iceman. And Iceman's like, wow, chill out, dude. (laughs) Just be cool. Warren is just such a shit in this. And like, there's this part that just like really made me mad when Betsy's like, why are you being like this? Why are you acting like this? What we have is nice. What we have is fun. You know, like I can look at whoever I want, but I made a commitment to you. And that's like, that's beautiful to hear. That's something that everybody should be happy to hear. Warren is just like, look, what we have isn't like endgame marriage material. We're no Gene and Scott, and like we're no Gene and Scott is like such a crazy fucking thing for a man who's known both of them since they were teenagers to say. <laughs> but like, yeah, he's just like, yeah, we're not, we're not like them. And I've just realized that like I actually want that eventually. And without like even asking if that's something Betsy would ever be interested in, he literally is just like, so goodbye, I'm going. And this totally has nothing to do with you and Neil. <laughs> <laughs> i was just like oh man i good good for betsy and betsy for her part goes immediately to the christmas party is like hello neil <laughs> uh that's like betsy and neil together i haven't i don't know anything about it but just her colonialist attitude all the time is just neil deserves so much better than that <laughs> absolutely not 
this is a Christmas story, basically. I mean, it's like a Christmas story, like maybe Gremlins is a Christmas story where it's like set at Christmas. No, I and, still like, haven't seen Gremlins. <laughs> I know you still haven't seen Gremlins, right? And there's Christmas presents and there's Christmas themes. So it's like a Christmas movie, but it's not because it's setting up so much more. Yeah, it's, it's so, an extreme X-Men holiday special, really, is what it is, right? Yeah, it is. That's exactly what it is. You did say that it's not a Christmas issue. They do pass a little manger thing with mutants in it. And I actually appreciated this. The, the issue does make an effort to say, like, explicitly, the kind of people who hate mutants are neo-Nazis because they also deface the menorah at the at the manger. It's a nice little, exactly. little connection there is that, yes, neo-Nazis are these kind of people. Exactly. And there's so many references that you don't understand in this thing. <laughs> like when Viper drops off Wolverine's claw. I mean, I was just like, okay, I get like Kitty had that claw, I guess, because... <laughs> keepsakes or whatever why is viper in this are they married oh my god you don't know they're married they'd be married (laughs) gross who lets who lets who lets viper kiss them on the mouth well okay so it was like more of a contractual obligation to seraph and like that wolverine what is like 125 through 127 where like wolverine and Sabretooth and kitty pride like switch I will take your word for it. This era of X-Men is so wild. It's like the one era of X-Men I've never read. It is just completely baffling to me. You know, Abe, I'm so happy you've never read this because, like, this is, like, awful, but it's high fucking camp, and, like, it's the fucking era I grew up reading. (laughs) I mean, this was coming out when I was a kid. I just was not reading X-Men at this time, and it's it's just completely wild to me to see what's in it. Like, there are other eras that I have not really read, but they're not as baffling. Like, when people tell me about the Inhumans versus X-Men, I'm like, man, that sounds like a hard time for you. But when I hear about the the late 90s, I'm like, what the fuck was going on? Who is Cerise? This, like, death cry looking lady? (gasps) You don't know who Cerise is? Oh, my God. Scalibur, right? I think think I've heard of her on the Explain the X-Men. Yes, and she appeared again during Maximum Security, again, where Rogue got her weird scroll powers, which is a thing. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe some parts of this period are better left in the past. But Cerise is not. Cerise is amazing. Cerise should show up in everything. And I love her kissing Nightcrawler. There's a lot of circus going on in this issue. That's fun. Colossus is clown-faced for whatever reason. That was really cute. You know me. You know who I see Nightcrawler at the circus. You know I see expect to see him kissing. His sister, of course. His sister. <laughs> Thankfully in this, it is just a Shi'ar? Shi'ar? Yes. Yeah. yeah, she looks Shi'ar. At the heart of this story, right? So we talked about some of the, like, the, the really the fun bits, you know, the weird 90s crap, like Kitty Pride giving up her claw because she's going into hiding, although she appears in the next issue to drop off Colossus's ashes, which is fucked up as well. And this issue comes right after Moira McTaggart and Senator Kelly die. So like, so Colossus's like, last act on Earth before dying of the legacy virus, or to, to cure it, was to paint his face like a clown and throw pies at Brotherhood of Evil Mutants cosplayers. Hey, but you know what way to go out on a high note sure yeah i don't know the emotions in this are so weird got like colossus like heart fault tugging for thinking he sees iliana you've got warren and betsy's anticlimactic breakup you've got you got storm's uh distrust of xavier juxtaposed with her like trying to soothe him at the end of the night and say like look what you've done your legacy will live on even as she's like i can't let him hear the diaries that's the heart of this whole thing and that's what extreme x-men was supposed to be about even though it turned into like i don't know but not really about that the heart of this issue is the start for the search of destiny's diary 
which is continued in Extreme X Men. We get Sage, who showed up in like the 100s before of the X Men as t- from Tessa. She was revealed to be a spy for Xavier. Is this her first issue back, by the way? Because like they all don't trust her. I'm like, okay. She had a few issues because she appeared as support staff during the Revolution era with Forge when he was training Danny Moonstar in how to be a mystic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that happened. Yeah. <laughs> It did. Destiny's Diaries, nobody trusts Xavier. Onslaught gets name-checked, and also Claremont unrelatedly uses the word Onslaught like he does, because he's like the only person who ever writes that word besides people talking about his X-Men. But Beast here is the only member of the students, of course, to be like, no, I trust Xavier implicitly. Of course, and this is when this is before we implicitly knew that Beast was a fucking jackass. That depends on how, like... depends on how you look at it. I already disliked him by this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> he was very bad with Trinity a few years earlier than this. But. Okay, okay. But he had some cute moments with Trish Tilby, who quickly into the Morrison era <laughs> dumps his ass because he looks like a fucking lion. Yes, yes. And then Why couldn't he be gay? He goes and tells the world he's gay in the most homophobic fucking thing I've ever read. Yeah, I'm not a fan. But anyway, yeah. But, um, but the Christmas party. <laughs> you know what's weird about this Christmas party? Because of the way, like, Joe Matarera drew her and uh, several other artists drew her, I consistently mistook Trish Tilby for Jubilee in some of these scenes. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? I'm like, oh, that's Trish Tilby, I guess. And the caption above says, like, they are mutants. And I'm like, oh, that must be Jubilee. And then, like, a minute later, she's, like, necking on Beast. And I'm like, uh? Yeah, just, just so everybody knows, it's page 19 of Digital on MU that we're talking about where uh, Beast and Trish Tilby are sitting on the stairs. And yes, she does very much look like Jubilee right there. At least the way Jubilee was drawn in this era, which is to say not as not as small as previously, but with the exact same hair. Yeah. Where is Jubilee at this time? Would she not, why, why is she not present? Where are all the other X-Men? Are they, are they just uncanny? She's in Generation X. Jubilee oh, of course. Is still in She's Generation still in, yeah. yeah. And then the other X-Men, I don't know. Apparently the uncanny X-Men just don't celebrate Christmas with the X-Men. So like... <laughs> Scott and Jean are out somewhere. Are they in Alaska? I don't know where they are. They're somewhere. I have no They're idea where they were somewhere. at this time. I think they, They're making racial. They, they imply that Scott is like dead or gone or something at this time. I don't know yeah. if it's around the time of the 12 or what. This is right after the 12. So, yes, Scott had died and was the host for Apocalypse. And it's before he came. Uh, I, hate, I hate everything this about was... that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this episode is not about me catching up on 90s X-Men. <laughs> we should talk about some more about the Christmas. Do you wonder what Psylocke got Thunderbird? Neil I did, but I, I assume it's like a sexy pictures of her or like... I, I kind of thought it might be like a toy of some kind, the way he was looking. <laughs> he's just like, no, you can't see what's in the box. Almost had to be because he's he, like. They just met like today, right? Like, throw like I don't know how long ago they could have possibly met. Like a month ago? <laughs> Time in that era is so weird. Because... Neil is unaware that she is dating Warren, clearly, at this point, or seems to be at the beginning of this. He knows. <laughs> But he's like, oh, nothing's going on between us. We're just flirting heavily, which is fine, right? It's fine. Betsy's allowed to do that. Yeah, anybody is. Warren, Warren is apparently like a control freak and just like, you're flirting with Neil. Fuck you. I'm going to divorce you. I'm going <laughs> to divorce you. But yeah, it's weird how he's, he launches into that like, 
what about what about till death? And I'm like, what are you talking about, Warren? You are like dating. That's exactly why I was like, I'm gonna divorce you because he was like, wait, hold on, wait. He's like, I want to get married, Betsy, and you've told me. If you don't love shit. me like, forever, this relationship is not worth my time. Yeah, no, I just it's Warren's just hard for me to enjoy it. Like I, I love the design. Walt Simonson, perfect job. Great job, everybody. But <laughs> I don't like reading him talk. Back to the Christmas aspect of it. So after the snowball fight, which was really cute in the manger scene and in the party. So Xavier, is it Xavier who gives Storm that outfit? Because that's what No, I that's Yukio. Believe. <laughs> that was my favorite part of the issue. You can guess why. That was Yukio. Oh my god, says, that was fucking Yukio. <laughs> to my windrider. To my windrider. Gotcha. That is so romantic, Yukio. Like Yukio oh. buys Storm that her apparently her extreme X-Men gear. <laughs> Which yeah. is classic because it's, of course, t- very tight-fitting black leather. But like, that was yeah. my favorite part of the whole issue was Claremont just saying, once again, Orochio, canon. Orochio should be canon. And if they ever want to make it a thruple, add Callisto in. And I'm sorry. Yeah, you know I'm into it. Storm can have as many lovers as she wants. That's just Storm can do anything she wants. <laughs> Storm can do anything she wants. She wants T'Challa, go for it. She wants Yukio, go for it. She wants everybody, go for it. She wants Wolverine, <laughs> maybe think twice. I don't know, you know, take some time to consider <laughs> please i mean like they work as fuck buddies to me but like yeah i mean like i won't lie i, did, I like them flirting in like ten of swords but i do not buy them ever as a couple i'm like that is fucking weird get it out of here I, I think that was my favorite of the gifts that i that we can see here we don't really get to see a lot of the other gifts do we no we don't rogue apparently got something so beautiful from gambit even after she was yeah that she's like <sighs> sobbing tears behind her red sunglasses he obviously stole it whatever it is but it's the thought down <laughs> what do you think he stole for Kendra's Rogue gem. that she loved so much? Kendra's, Kendra's gem. The jewel of Kendra. I, but he stole it. Doesn't even know her soul's in it. Perfection. Yeah. <laughs> do you think Sage got anybody anything? Or do you think she's just kind of like, fuck you guys, I'm not Tessa anymore, so I don't have to get you Sage anything. has no idea what to get any of the X-Men, first of all. Second of all, she has no inclination to do so, because they've all been kind of dicks to her, at least in this issue. And third of all, Sage probably didn't even think about Christmas gifts. Sage has other things to calculate. <laughs> I gotta touch upon the weird-ass history of Destiny's Diaries going up to this issue. So the first time we're introduced to Destiny's Diaries is that period of time after Scroll Wolverine died, or right around when Scroll Wolverine died, when the X-Men broke up. And Rogue and Kitty Pryde, for some reason, went on a road trip together, which was kind of weird because they used to hate each other, but I guess they... Is Rogue always going on road trips with people? Didn't she go on a road trip with Bobby, like, around this time? She did. She did. 90s was the road trip X-Men era, because you have X-Force road trip, and then you have Rogue and Bobby's road trip, and then you have Kitty and Rogue's weird little road trip that they help save Mystique and Sunfire. And then that's when Kitty Pride bumps into Destiny's diary because Destiny left a note on a picture frame and drew a picture of a cat and it said, Kitty, right here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's I'm I'm glad they're always playing tricks. That's that's really fun. <laughs> So, so Kitty Pride got the first Destiny's Diary that we got introduced yes. to. Mystique has some of them. And then Mystique has some of them. And when Mystique killed Moira McTaggart, or thought she killed Moira McTaggart, she gave them to Xavier. We do find out that Kitty Pride has been studying before she disappeared in X-Men like 101. Before she disappeared for a few months and suddenly reappears, we do find out that she is studying destiny's diaries trying to figure out what's going on and the the page right there is a picture of i think it's I forget, but this 
there's two X-Men who are looking at it, just looking at the page, and they're like, holy fuck, this is, like, some real shit right here. I do like that this issue makes a point of being, like, I, I think it's Storm who's like, the observations are all correct, but the conclusions drawn are completely wrong. <laughs> just like, whoever was reading these diaries is a fucking idiot. This is perfect because this issue really lines up with what's kind of going on with right now in Inferno, right? Because it's all about mystique and destiny. And that's what Extreme X-Men was set up to be. And that's what a lot of Claremont's era was about mystique and destiny and their predictions for mutant kind. So, like, it's really perfect that this is wrapped in a Christmas wrapping paper. It's just brought to life between inappropriate like weirdness between Psylocke and Warren and Neil and like Rogue going crazy because she's got scroll DNA. She's the original Kree scroll. Ah, yes. <laughs> I, I have to give credit to Claremont for being, you know, the world's foremost destiny and Raven shipper. Um, big same. Uh, shout out to Colossus in this issue for calling Raven and Irene companions. <laughs> I think you mean wives there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> hey you know Colossus isn't all that with it <laughs> he couldn't read between the lines yes her companion her comrade my friend her comrade yes they, they were comrades that rushing upbringing history will history will record that they were comrades yeah, yeah this has been a delight it was a fun issue a, a good Christmas read and honestly like a cool jumping pivotal read into the next era I honestly think this is like the most influential Christmas issue I've yet read from the X-Men for whatever reason looking forward to get into extreme soon yes and I, for one, apologize for what you're going to get into because I know I'm pushing for you to read Extreme, but I only want you to read Extreme because I want you to get to the very end where it's Storm the Arena because that's the, like, <laughs> trying to get, where yeah. my, like, <laughs> that's where my Storm, Yukio, and Callisto throuple love comes from. Well, I'm looking forward to that. <sighs> Absolutely. going to be a fun time. <laughs> Hey X-Fans, this is X's for Podcast. I'm Steven, and you can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder. For today's Holiday X-Jam, I'm going to talk about Marvel Holiday Special 2004. Very specifically, the X-Men story in X-Men Xmas. The writer, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. On pencils, Roger Cruz. Inks, Victor Olazaba. Colors, Chris Solomayer. The letterer, Clem Robbins. And the editor, Ralph Macchio. As a slight recap for the story, we have Iceman outside giving the mansion a winter makeover. He's then summoned by Emma to the assembly to dismiss the students for winter break. Logan rides off into the sunset singing that very famous version of Jingle Bells involving Batman and Robin. Beast asks Trish Tilby out for New Year's. And the students all leave but one, Kevin Ford, a.k.a. Wither. We see Emma talking on the phone with a man who is supposed to be taking Kevin in for the holidays. And it turns out that they end up canceling because of the nature of his ability, which happened to be the ability to disintegrate organic matter on a rapid scale. Emma discusses this with Scott, and they come to the conclusion that they're Vacation to Pleasure Island is going to be canceled. They approach Kevin and inform him that he will be spending the holiday with them. And he is, for lack of a better term, astounded. They take him to Manhattan. 
to places like FAO Schwartz, a wonderful toy company, where they allow him to pick out three video games for his Xbox. They give him an option to see a play on Broadway or a big cinematic movie. He chooses the movie, much to Emma's chagrin. <laughs> then they take him ice skating. And on Christmas Eve, Emma then approaches Kevin sitting on the couch where she offers her hand in diamond form so that he can feel human touch on Christmas Eve. Now, this story really spoke to me because at one point or another, we have all been Kevin Ford. We've all needed that person in our lives who treated us like a person. Yeah, this is this is such, to me, a quintessential X-Men Christmas story because... We love the X-Men because they are, quote-unquote, society's rejects. They're minorities, they're the people that you look at with upturned noses, they're the people that you turn away or reject, and we've all been there. And it's really heartwarming to see a person like that that you relate to be treated like a person, be treated like a human being. Now, as much as I do identify with Kevin's story, uh, a little background on me uh, and my history of comics is that I actually started reading the books because of Emma Frost in the first place. And that's a story I can get into at another time. But for me, this story really spoke to the heart of who she is as a character. Now, she is often seen as brutal and cold and vicious and bitchy, but that's not really all that she is. And a lot of writers do tend to forget that. They forget that she is first and foremost a teacher, and she does have a maternal instinct to love and protect them. And you see that all here. You see her telling off the man on the phone, calling him a bigot. You see her immediately come to the conclusion, even if she didn't love the idea, to cancel her vacation with Scott. She comes up with the entire weekend. She she takes him to the same toy store that her family took her to for Christmas. It's just, it's a really heartwarming feeling, not just to see Kevin be treated the way any human should be treated, but it's really great, even as an Emma fan, to see a writer truly understand who she is at her core. And I'm just so happy that Nico asked me to read this again, because it brought back a lot of memories. And not just from my history with the characters, but also as a boy from Brooklyn who, who was born and raised there and got to see all of these places again, even in print, during this very hectic time in our history <laughs> of COVID. And it was just... It was just really, really great to read, and I look forward to the next holiday special. <laughs>
Hey everybody, Nico here one more time. Now these last two stories, these were personal requests of mine for these people to cover. I asked Raven to cover Avengers Annual 2013 and Jonah to cover the Ghost Rider Xmas Infinity comic. Now I'm a well-known Robbie Reyes fan and I'm always here for some Catherine Eminen and some David LaFuente. And it just felt like these were two people who I really wanted to see connect with these stories. And it was such an amazing time, guys. We hope you have an incredible time enjoying these last two segments. As always, we love making this show for you. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at X is for podcast. Don't forget you can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Guys, don't forget the Platinum Dazzlers are just around the corner. So keep an eye out for all of the incredible things Nathan is cooking up for that for this year. And until next time, guys, keep those Krakoan gateways open, those mutant lights lit. Enjoy these last two segments, and we'll see ya. Hi, I'm Dame Red Bento, a.k.a. Raven. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, oddly enough. Uh, I've got tons to say, so come on over, start a conversation. Trust me, you will get me to talk for quite some time. Today I am reviewing, or you know, giving you a little cap, <laughs> on Avengers Annual from 2013. The story was written by Catherine Immonen, art by David Lafuente, color art by Rain Brito and Lee Lofridge. Uh, cover art is done by David Lafuente and Lee Lofridge as well. And lettering done by Corey Pettit from VC. So this was a fun little ROM. I noticed the art style is very similar to quite a few other annual that I've seen from like Deadpool as well as Gwenpool. So I think it was a thing going on. <laughs> but it was really, really fun. So we're, we get to see a little bit of Tony and the Avengers having fun and winding down from all the different things that have been going on around Avengers Towers. And it's it happens to be Christmas night. Turns out everybody has plans. Shang-Chi is taking many of his students off to do discipline and study and eh, you know, they're going to chill. Tony is off to a uh, a retreat of some sort banner who looks very non-banner in my opinion he's off to a seminar or something in genosha of course you know black widow's off to do her thing which is apparently hanging out in a very fancy hotel with really nice sheets and uh, steve has decided that he's gonna stay behind and go ahead and take care of the tower while everybody's away they all, you know, head off in their separate directions to get things done and whatnot. We actually do get to see a brief guest appearance from one of our favorite mutants, Manifold. Comes in and helps out Shang-Chi, which, yay! I love seeing mutants and non-mutants actually, you know, doing things together and whatnot. So it makes me happy. I loved the color work. While the art is more simplistic, which is completely fine, I love how it played with the color work. It was so nice. It gave it a very kind of a holiday Christmas comic strip kind of feel, if you know what I mean, like old school comic strips. It was really nice. It was light. It was cheery. And it was quite lovely. As everybody heads out, we see that one child is left behind, but they chose to be left behind because, well, I mean, 
mean, not that they've told anybody else, but she was just not in the mood to deal with a bunch of other people because Zamira can manifest voices that are inside her head and they all come out. <laughs> they, they all come out looking like variations of that voice. The physical form still resembles her to the most part, but like her voice of Tony sounds exactly like Tony and her voice of Cap sounds exactly like Cap while still looking very much like her. So it's very interesting to see that this young mutant is <laughs> basically a perfect copy um, or a perfect replica with a bit of her own bent. And she figured being in the Avengers Tower alone would be more beneficial because it's going to be a nice quiet space and she just kind of wants a little less noise in her head and a little less noise around her because the more stressed out she comes the more more prevalent these become. Steve. <laughs> I love him so much. Uh, Steve aka Captain America heads out to a old shelter or a local soup kitchen and <laughs> helps out with meal service there which is so funny to watch him be a service sub for all these cute little grannies. Captain America just oh, hits so many of the right buttons for me and he's just this very wonderful sweet earnest person whose life very much does revolve around service to others and kindness to others and to me I think we need to see more heroes like him but yeah just... so yeah he gets to sit and <laughs> talk and and just relax with another veteran it turns out who is just you know kind of there doing his own thing for for the for the holidays and the little old grannies are kind of cheering him on because they know that these two men honestly need each other so that they can talk and so they can put down that heavy load that veterans often carry whether it's survivor's guilt or you know how can i do more how could i have not done more you know like did i do the right thing kind of thing and so it's it's really nice to actually see Captain America being human because so often you only see superheroes as heroes and you don't always get to see them as people. The rest of the Avengers are off kind of doing their own things but of course you know still still taking note what's going on at least in the background. Now a little bit later on we see our voice clone making mutant child getting into a bit of trouble because the voices that she has has running through her head are mostly Tony Stark <laughs> and Steve Rogers and kind of her own version I guess of herself. Because her power is to make a perfect voice copy that is embodied, the computer is actually taking those voice copies at their word quite literally and it's creating some havoc in the labs. Turns out that not only was Black Widow super close by when the alarms started going off, Banner had not gone anywhere either either. So they're all rushing back trying to get in there and what do they find but a lab on fire with <laughs> the parody version of Tony Stark, the parody version of Hulk now because he decided to come bursting in and yeah she's super stressed out and heard his voice and boop. We've got a clone Hulk, a clone Tony, a clone Captain America, a clone Black Widow and oh it's just hilarity and fireworks and all kinds of 
weirdness ensuing. Now the funny thing about these physical constructs, while you can hear the voice perfectly, they actually don't have a physical form. So they figure out really quickly, oh, 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 this is one person's doing not, not like actual physical clones running havoc. But that does create problems because the only person who can control what is being said in any capacity is Zemiria, who the more she gets stressed out, the more the voices get loud and um, antagonistic. Well, we also figure out that <laughs> there's another intruder in the building, but it turns out that it is Tony Stark himself. He had not actually left. He was working on a different project, apparently in the man's bathroom. <laughs> so yeah, hilarity, comedy, and absolutely pure chaos ensues as the building continues to fight back against, well, the Avengers and, oh my god, Tony made sugar plump fairies, I guess you could say. <laughs> Fortunately, Widow is able to save the day by by showing this young woman that it's not impossible for her to control her power, but to think of the power only as a burden is what's causing the stress. And so she is the fix that they need and helps to save the day. Uh, it's so wonderful. And it's great to see the Avengers, you know, actually didn't go all their separate way. They did stay and they have kind of a nice little <laughs> Christmas dinner in the end. So yay! Uh, this is a fun little read. Um, it was a wonderful little story. And, you know, yes, of course, it had a little bit of, of uh, you know, after school special to it. <laughs> <laughs> but I would expect no less, especially for a Christmas special of this variety. And it was still very fun and lighthearted and well-written. And I really appreciated reading this. And I thought it was so much fun. And I hope that I get to read more from uh, not only this writer, but I hope I get to see more of this kind of art. So thank you very much for joining me in this fun little romp through the Avengers Tower. Have a good night. <music> Hey everyone, welcome back to another holiday segment for X's for Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah, and today I'll be covering a very special Xmas issue. Not necessarily involving the X-Men, but a mutant does appear. Today I'll be covering Ghost Rider X-Men Special, The Christmas Spirit of Vengeance, with the storytellers of Method Man, fellow Staten Islander, hi Mr. Method Man, big fan, Anthony Piper and Balak, with colors by Andres Mosa and Anthony Piper, as well as Lettering by Travis Lanham. This issue is a really fun special Christmas issue that I was kind of really excited to cover because I never got to read anything Robbie Reyes yet. I haven't really gotten to experience him in the comics and Nico talks about how much he loves him. So this is another character that I was really excited to get to know and get to see and I think a holiday special is a pretty fun way to get to know somebody because it's not terribly serious and it's very a lot more jovial and light hearted and easier to digest and to help get you more introduced to a character if you're not ready to dive into their series where everything about them is just thrusted at you. And I really appreciated kind of everything. Uh, Robbie Reyes is so gorgeous. Oh my goodness, that's number one. Number two, he's so cool. The plot of this issue is that Robbie picks up his brother from school and his brother is getting teased for still believing in Santa Claus. And 
And while at this school and around these kids, the ghostwriter spirit, which I guess is a separate entity from Robbie, which is fascinating. I actually don't know too much about ghostwriter lore outside of, you know, skull on fire, cool jacket with a whip and a motorcycle or some kind of ride. But uh, it seems like Robbie gets to have a really cool um, car as his uh, ghostwriter ride of choice. And I think that's amazing. So they feel this spirit around these kids and it ends up being Krampus, who is kidnapping bad children to cook them into soup and eat them. And Robbie has to go save them. And it's a really interesting issue because this is technically an Infinity comic that came out in 2016. And Marvel right now is on a really big push for their Marvel Unlimited app to push these free, these Infinity comics. And I think they're doing a really interesting and great job with these Infinity comics. And not only are the way that you can consume and read them, but that they're meant to be these issues that if you don't have time to commit to multiple 22 plus page comics a week, you can kind of just read these. They're about maybe the same length if you, you know, technically sectioned everything off, but they're a lot easier to digest. There's a lot less dialogue typically, and it's a lot easier just to scroll through and be like, okay, you read a couple of them, you're good to go, and you can get along your day because not everybody has time to sit down to read comics. So this is kind of like their first one of, I imagine, their first attempts at what an Infinity comic is like. And this is really interesting in the way that it reads because it doesn't read like a traditional comic, yet it has those traditional comic ideas of you'll see a panel and then you'll have the same, either the panel expanded upon to see other parts of what's going on in that scene or it's a different section of that panel and it doesn't read as you're scrolling vertically, you're still scrolling horizontally like you would reading any other kind of digital comic. So it was really interesting how this Infinity comic came about and is, you know, the predecessor to what Marvel is going through right now. But enough about Infinity comics. We're not here to talk about that. This issue was just really adorable and very jovial to get somebody in the spirit, I think, for the holidays. So, so I've done my own research on the character of Santa Claus because I think Santa Claus is a free domain character. Everybody's going to use them. Everybody's going to have some iteration within their own world or comics, and Marvel is no exception. Santa's a mutant, if you didn't know that, and I love that, which means Santa has citizenship on Krakoa. Not that he ever would. He's too busy doing his own mutant gift to the world and, you know, delivering all those toys to all the good little children out and about and who leave him cookies and milk. But I love that. I love that Santa's a mutant. I love that he made a brief appearance in here, even though this isn't an X title. This is, you know, a ghostwriter issue. I love everything about this. I love that uh, Robbie's younger brother still believes in Santa Claus even though he seems like a little bit older and I think that's just great you know I think something I think about a lot is kids have such a beautiful and vivid imagination and it's that really joyful innocence of still believing in the magic of things and still believing in the spirit of what we have taught them to believe in and these values and these ideas that they stick to them and like they they really so wholeheartedly believe 
believe in. I really love, and I love that we get to see that. I love that Robbie doesn't make fun of his brother for still believing in Santa Claus. He supports him. It doesn't surprise me that Robbie hasn't encountered Santa Claus before, but in my brain, I was like, well, Santa's a mutant. Like, uh, there are other characters who've experienced Santa before. Santa actually is real. No, like, actually real. But everything about this was, like, just really cool. The art is super clean. I think Robbie has a very interesting voice. He's got a sick-ass fucking car that's, like, so like i i love that there are different interpretations you can do for the ghost rider vehicle i think a lot of people are probably very synonymous to the johnny blaze motorcycle kind of ghost rider and i love that there are not only so many different iterations of ghost rider the character itself but rather it's always a very different interpretation of what kind of ride you're giving them and the sick wheels are just a the cherry on top this is a really just a fun issue to read you get to see robbie be a badass older brother going to save these kids fighting krampus like him burning krampus was just so cool it reminds me of how man thing operates if funny enough where man thing you know burns everything that fears that experiences fear and something about just the way that this spirit of vengeance for christmas really just helps kind of get you in the mood even though you know it is kind of horrifying to see a goat-legged demon steal some kids and try to literally make them into soup i do enjoy that i do enjoy that we got to see robbie kick some ass and kind of fight these like little miniature krampi krampus multiple krampus krampa people <laughs> these little mini elves that uh attack robbie everything about this was really just nice it is not the most over the top or complex issue it's pretty by the number when it comes to comics where you get your premise set up you get your villain doing something bad hero trying to find the villain little minor you know minions fighting hero hero needs a moment before it looks like they're about to fail someone else comes in or there's some other moment this big declaration of energy there where the hero realizes they can win and they defeat the enemy and all is saved and it's just a fun christmas story i would love to see this in like an animation i can't wait to read more robbie in comparison to the X-Men issue that I covered where that was multiple X stories throughout Christmas and what those characters were doing, this was just looking at a little bit of Robbie going home for the holidays and what his home life is like. And I actually really enjoy that. I like that Robbie seems like this really caring older brother and that there's an interesting dynamic with the ghostwriter spirit where Robbie knows he can't always let full control go over, especially in the presence of weaker innocent parties like children so seeing that push and pull between these two identities for the character i really enjoyed i also think his costume is pretty sick like everything about robbie is just cool he's just cool you know and i'm really excited to get to more to read him if you are looking for something light and easy to read and you just want to have a good time maybe you don't know who ghostwriter is or maybe you love robbie reyes i fully recommend checking this out if you can it might seem daunting when you look at it and go, it's 98 pages, but they're really easy to get to. Remember, this is supposed to be an Infinity comic, so there's not a lot of dialogue, and it's not the most complex art. But it's still really beautiful. Everything all works together. It feels concise. It feels like a very clean-cut story. So I this was a real absolute joy to read, and I can't wait to not only cover more, but to, can't wait to, you know, read more Robbie. Robbie.